0: Recording in progress.
1: Good evening. I now call to order the Shoreline City Council regular meeting for Monday, November 20th, 2023. Will you all please join me in the flag salute? I pledge
2: allegiance to the flag of the
3: United States of of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all.
1: Thank you. The next item is uh, is approval of the agenda. If there are no objections or comments, the agenda is adopted by unanimous consent. Which brings us to the report. Um, Deputy Mayor. Did I miss something? Would you like me to call the roll? I would love for you to call the roll. <laughs> okay. Let's re- let's rewind um, and go back to the roll. The clerk, please call the roll.
4: Mayor Scully.
3: Present via Zoom.
4: Deputy Mayor Robertson. Here. Councilmember Ramsdale. Present. Councilmember Mark. Here. Councilmember McConnell. Here. Councilmember Poby. Here. Councilmember Roberts. Here. All right. Thanks for being here, everybody. Um,
1: now we'll just go through it again. Uh, if there are no objections or comments to the agenda, seeing none, it is adopted by unanimous consent which now brings us to the report of the city manager, and John Norris is acting city manager and will be providing the report for us tonight.
5: Thank you,
6: Deputy Mayor. Good evening, Council. Um, As you are, I will wait till the slide gets put up here. There we go. All right. As Council is all aware, and for those in the audience who may not be aware, the city's comprehensive plan is the guide for the city uh, the city's next 20 years, and we need the community's input to help guide our future decision-making We are asking uh, to please take some time to help shape Shoreline's future by sharing your thoughts in our online survey up, um, through December 10th uh, You can learn more about our comprehensive planning process and the update process and find a link to the survey uh, at shorelinewa.gov slash 2044 and so again we uh, Greatly appreciate the community's input on that and encourage everyone to participate. And as a reminder, I know I mentioned this at last week's meeting as well, the winter porch light parade registration is now open. The cities of Bothell, Kenmore, Lake Forest Park and Shoreline are partnering to bring the event to North King County again this year. Light displays in any type of space are welcome and encouraged and to register. To share your light display with the community, Uh, you can go to bit.ly slash winter porch light parade. And the virtual map will go live on that site on December 1st. And uh, in honor of the holidays this week, city facilities will be closed Thursday and Friday. And all of us at City Hall would like to wish the residents of Shoreline a safe and happy Thanksgiving and Native American Heritage Day. Uh, I will also say that we are so thankful to serve in such a supportive, engaged, and caring community, and we hope that everyone is able to celebrate and spend time with friends and family this holiday. And finally, um, City Hall will be open on a regular schedule on Monday, uh, November 27th, so next Monday, and we will see you then for our next regular council meeting. Uh, We also have an upcoming Planning Commission meeting and Parks, Recreation, and Cultural Services tree board meeting which are both scheduled for december 7th and for the full agenda and information on how to participate in or comment at all of our public meetings you can visit the city's web calendar and you can see the uh, url the the address there on the slide and deputy mayor that is all i have tonight
1: thank you mr norris that brings us to council reports i'd like to open it for any council reports this evening start with council member roberts
5: Uh, thank you deputy mayor um like many of my colleagues on the board uh, I was fortunate to attend the National League of Cities conference in Atlanta last week um, some highlights for me um, during the board of directors meeting we had a strategic discussion on the government's role in supporting the impact of opioids and sup- substance use substance use and its intersection with mental health uh, quite a mouthful there um, I was asked by Mayor Scully to participate in a panel on road safety interventions that work and save lives. Uh, That was a really good panel. We got to hear from uh, other cities of what was happening across the uh, nation in terms of some of the work they're doing on road safety. I would say that we are definitely uh, doing what other cities, especially the other cities on the panel are doing on that. Uh, Many of the things that they were doing are things that we're also doing in, in Shoreline. And then finally, at the uh, uh, annual business meeting, I was uh, elected, uh, reelected to the Board of Directors along with three other Washingtonians, uh, Bellevue Councilwoman Janice Son, uh, Vancouver Councilmember Ty Stober. So we will serve on the board for the next year, two years, uh, with, along with immediate past president Tacoma Mayor Victoria Woodards. Thank you, Deputy Mayor.
1: Any other council reports? Mayor scully did you want to add anything okay um thank you yes six out of seven of the council were there um, i really enjoyed my time as well and what i thought was interesting is that with one exception i was the only shoreline council member in the workshops that i attended which sort of leads me to believe that we really diversified um, the information that we were taking in um, rep- reflected kind of the diversity of our interests and i came away with a lot of a lot of great information and takeaways that i will be able to you know discuss and implement in the in the weeks and months ahead so thanks to everybody for attending uh nlc in atlanta okay Closing council reports and then opening a public comment. This is the portion of the meeting where members of the public may address the city council on agenda items or any other topic for three minutes or less, depending on the number of people wishing to speak. The total public comment period will be no more than 30 minutes. If more than 10 people are signed up to speak, each speaker will be allotted two minutes. So Ms. Smith, how many individuals have signed up to speak this evening?
4: There are 17 individuals signed
1: up this evening. Okay, so that takes us to two minutes. Um, and Councilmember Roberts.
5: Uh, Deputy Mayor, I move to allow uh, each speaker who signed up uh, the opportunity to speak for up to two minutes.
1: Second. Okay, we have a motion and a second to extend the public comment period. Um, will the
4: clerk please call the roll? Mayor Scully? Aye. Deputy Mayor Robertson? Aye. Councilmember Ramsdow? Aye. Councilmember Mork? aye councilmember mcconnell aye councilmember pobey aye councilmember roberts
5: aye
1: okay that motion moves forward unanimously Um, we're going to start by calling on in-person speakers first and remote speakers after that when it is your turn please come up to the mic if you're in person state your name city of residence and any organization you represent and while our first speaker is getting set up i want to note that while the city of shoreline recognizes Freedom of speech as a cornerstone of our democracy and respects diverse opinions, a council meeting is not an open public forum, so any person making disruptive remarks will be muted. Thank you. Please be advised that your testimony is being recorded. And Ms. Smith, let's start with the names of the individuals signed up.
4: Yes, so for the in-person speakers, if you guys want to line up um, behind the podium, Janet Way is first. Then we have Marilyn Yim, Rebecca Apron, and Harpeet Diwolo.
0: Good evening, Council. Glad to be here. Uh, I, I'm excited to announce a couple things. This is a certificate that I received from the Uh, State Department of Archaeology and Historic Preservation, and it's announcing the Seattle Naval Hospital Chapel, (coughs) excuse me, at Fircrest, is now on the, uh, listed on the Washington Heritage Register of Historic Places, and that means it's also eligible for the National Register of Historic Places, which is pending. The only problem is the certificate has a little error, because they thought that Seattle Naval Hospital meant it was in Seattle. So they're gonna give me a new one of these, but I thought you might like to see it, pass it around. So, and as you know, it's already landmarked as well. So my other thing, I only have two minutes, so, um, I wanna speak about the uh, budget uh, amendment that Council Member Roberts is bringing up about Furlands Way. This is a map that I drew some years ago, I don't know, I think Doris was here, and I think Chris was here at the time, but um, This is, oh, uh, yeah, is um, Furlins Way and the park out front here, which you recognize, but it turns out it's the Way is a very historic site almost as historic as the Naval Hospital Chapel um, And it was called Furlins Way because it went over to Furlins where Krista is now but the thing is it is Eligible it's it's deserving of being designated as our original like Pioneer Square our original Main Street It has um, it was our first commercial Street. It should be a walking Street Uh, The Bank of America building is is there and is available for use somehow And I'm suggesting that it it could be a place for people to walk to on Berlin's Way if there was a gallery there for the arts um Shore Lake Arts, possibly, uh, and then also a pocket park is proposed for right behind the Bank of America. Am I out of time already? See what I'm saying? Two minutes is just—it's just not good enough. The popular historic night district, Thank Main you, Street, Ms. asking for the funding. Thank you.
7: Good evening council members. My name is Marilyn Yim and I am a small mom-and-pop landlord in the city of Shoreline. I actually live in Seattle. But it all started here in the city of Shoreline for us. We bought our house and it was where we had our first two children. And when we moved out we held on to it and it has been our first, our rental for the last 20 years. Um, I wanted to talk about the renter protections that you're proposing tonight. I wanted to point out that I first learned about this at 3 p.m. today so i am a little concerned about the um outreach that you're proposing to landlords because i don't think this is publicized well anywhere and so I wanted to point that out because I think that we can do better. Um, I think we can do better overall on outreach as well. Um, I'm a highly engaged landlord. I would love to talk to every one of you afterwards and I will follow up with a detailed information as well to all of you and I'd like to know which city staff I should send an email to. But I wanted to address um, about the late fees. I brought my North City Water District and City of Shoreline wastewater utility bills. The late fees on them are 10%. My mortgage is a 5% late fee. And so that's about the um, range of late fees. It seems that are charged and so one and a half percent is far below that I wanted to mention that the moving fees that you have right now Misses um, pet deposits and scanning screening reports And so I'm concerned that right now rentals that allow pets are hard to find It's confusing whether pet fees are, you know included in the limitation and it may make it harder for um, Rentals allowing pets to be found. So please consider that also um, Security deposits are often a tool to allow someone with bad credit to have a rental by increasing the security deposit. So limiting that may actually make it harder for people with bad credit to find rentals. Um, I also wanted to mention that uh, the social security number ban is a really concerning thing. I think you need to reword that so that people who have a social security number we can use it and then offer alternate screening to people who do not. Um, I also wanted to correct some information that was in an email to Councilmember Mork from uh, your community services manager about the length of time eviction takes. She said that it only takes 30 days to complete an eviction, and that is not true. Currently, it is over 12 months in King County, and that is due to the law changes after COVID. And so that is a significant change. I will follow up on email.
1: Thank you so much. There's a
7: lot of, um, you need current information. I will say that tonight is
1: for discussion only. It's not a voting night, so we will be discussing. Thank you so much. Thank you.
8: Hi, my name is Rebecca Arpin. Um, I'm here on behalf of the Shoreline Public Schools Foundation as well as um, the current Interim Dean over at Meridian Park, and I'm here to discuss Ordinance 996, Tenant Protections. Affordable, secure, and safe housing within the Shoreline community is critical to the emotional, psychological, physical, and educational health of our students and families. Housing stability provides a sense of security and belonging, and tenant protections ensure that this stability can occur. Housing constancy reduces the stress and anxiety that naturally comes from uncertainty about one's living situation. This emotional stability is critical for um, positive mental health in both adults and students. Housing stability means consistent education for our most vulnerable youth, a consistency that ensures children are able to remain in their school and establish a sense of community, have a better understanding of school culture, and realize better academic performance. Housing stability and tenant protections have a direct impact on one's financial stability. Families can better plan and manage their finances without the worry of unexpected housing costs or the need to relocate. For for adults, housing stability means less disruption in their employment. If one is not constantly moving, they can maintain work which can ultimately lead to better job opportunities. Obviously, reasonable uh, renter protections reduce the risk of homelessness which has lasting impacts on one's physical and mental health along with one's prospects of employment and academic success. Helping those who have already fallen into homelessness is is a much more monumental task than enacting prevention-focused initiatives. I've worked with many students here in Shoreline that have faced homelessness and unstable housing. The negative impacts on their attendance, academic performance, mental health, self-esteem, and a sense of community are are hugely apparent and have lasting ramifications. When families and students feel assurance that there are reasonable measures in place for protecting renters, then those families can focus on other elements of their lives, things that those of us with secure housing often take for granted. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Ms. Arpin.
9: Uh, Good evening to the City Council. My name is Harpreet Dollywall, and I'm gonna be echoing a lot of the sentiments that Ms. Kim said. Uh, I'm a lifetime member of uh, Shoreline, both as a community member and our family are heavily invested. Uh, So I'd like to speak to the tenant protection laws. Uh, We own um, multiple apartment buildings as well as small businesses in Shoreline. And we just wanna speak to the fact that uh, we're invested not only as community members, but as business owners and as providing uh, rental space to tenants. And the restrictions that are being proposed, especially after COVID, make it much more difficult for us as landlords to, in fact, be able to offer housing to our tenants. We see this with a lot of our colleagues as well. Folks are considering uh, divesting or leaving shoreline altogether, and we feel that walking some of those or amending some of those regulations will make a more inviting environment, uh, not only to tenants, but also to small businesses and us as business owners. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Okay, so moving to online speakers. First, we have Christina Sawakji. I do not see her in the list of attendees. So Christina, if you are here, can you please raise your hand in Zoom? Okay, if it's all right, I'll come back to her at the end. All right, next is Bob Gregg.
10: My name is Bob Gregg. I live in Edmonds. I want to talk briefly about the um, uh, staff report on uh, Ordinance Number One Thousand, the ground floor commercial. Um, last week, or just re- shortly there, about last week, um, the Planning Commission adopted the staff report unanimously, but only after I had, ex- had pointed out that um, most of the lots. Um, in the mur 70 zone uh, north of the light rail station and east of i-5 are 60 feet wide so with the two five yard setbacks you've got 50 feet if you've got a driveway going on that's 23 feet and that's exempt from the 60 percent uh, requirement for commercial so you're you're down to 16 feet and you need to also get a front door and uh um uh, lobby separate from the commercial area, um, all within 16 feet. So um, I asked for some consideration on that, and the Planning Commission asked um, staff, Andrew Bauer in particular, if that could be addressed in design review. And he said, yes, it could. So based on that, the Planning Commission adopted it, the staff report unanimously. I'm just asking that when you guys get around to adopting it, if you would stick in one sentence, the design review does have some authority um, to consider circumstances. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you. Next is Bart Flora.
11: Hello. Go ahead, Mr. Flora. Okay. hey, I'm a, a building owner. I own the 80 unit micro housing project on Aurora Avenue North where we ran apartments for $850 a month, utilities included. I stopped building and operating as much as possible in the city of Seattle because the the regulations and the ordinance against landlords are so severe. And I came to Shoreline because it was reasonable. And when I built the building, I have nothing but good things to say about the city of Shoreline and the cooperation and helpfulness of the all the employees and the city council and the mayor at the time of helping us to get this project done. So we, we, we build affordable housing, the proposed, uh, ordinances for, for rental housing, such as, um, limits on late fees. So you're going to limit late fees to, to a, 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 a re, a number that, that doesn't have any teeth in it. If it, you know, if I go, I I pay a 5% late fee on my mortgage payment to BECU, which would be like $3,500 a month. You want to reduce it to, uh, I don't know what it is. I don't have it in front of me, but, um, the next one is adjustable rent on due date so you're asking landlords to adjust the the due date that a tenant can pay the rent based on the date that they get paid once again i have to make a mortgage payment by the 10th of the month or i get a five percent late fee charge so these things are unreasonable and i hope you reach out to landlords before you enact any new renter protections because what is in place is very workable. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Next is Heidi Shepard. Uh, good evening,
12: Mayor Scully and Council members. This is Heidi Shepard, resident of Shoreline and board president of the North Urban Human Services Alliance. Uh, first, I'd like to speak to the concept of just cause. The ordinance for tenant protections refers to protecting renters from being evicted without reason, particularly if they are on fixed term leases. For example, when their one year lease expires, these six firms are sometimes replaced with month to month leases with higher rents. Just cause closes this loophole and protects the renters from being evicted based on retaliation or discrimination. Just cause is fair. My second point is uh, the current state of affordable rentals for individuals and families with lower incomes and shoreline. The Government Accountability Office in 2020 found that there is a strong correlation between rising rents and homelessness. In fact, a $100 raise in the rent creates a 9% rise in homelessness. I think we can agree that all of us want to see homelessness decrease and housing stability increase in all of our communities. The last point I'd like to talk about is protection for children and people with disabilities who are sometimes required to sign on their parents' lease when they reach 18. If the parents are later evicted, the child carries the stigma of eviction on their own credit reports. And from my work in the Shoreline Community Court, I can tell you that poor credit impacts accessible housing, access to purchasing a car and securing gainful employment. So, as you all move forward from uh, tonight and into discussion and then action, I urge you to support tenant protections that are reasonable so that we can continue to have a thriving community. Thank you.
4: Thank you. St. Newton is next.
13: I just unmuted
4: greetings council members.
13: I urge you to oppose ordinance 996. The largest rental demographic is women, children, and people of color. The King County Regional Affordable Housing Task Force report included a goal, good goal, preserve access to affordable homes for renters by supporting tenant protections. It sounds like a good goal, but it didn't work that way. Restrictive housing provider legislation has caused the city of Seattle to lose 14% of its rental housing stock over the last four years. The rental housing stock lost included many single family homes, which were once affordable, but now are lived in by homeowners or they were plowed down to build townhomes. Less housing available means it costs more. It used to be that if you were gonna take a chance on an applicant who really didn't meet the application criteria, the best bet was single mom, always. Now, because of the anti-housing provider legislation, we can't do that, even if you want to. Uh, what we do is we improve our units so they rent for more, we raise our rental criteria so we can lease to very qualified applicants. Any reasonable housing provider would react the same way we face faced with legislation where late fees can only be one and a half percent and payments can be made on move-in fees and deposits. You'd make sure you had really good applicants and you would never take a chance on anyone marginal. Rental applicants need to provide a credit background so the housing provider can access, assess the likelihood the resident will pay rent in a timely manner. This combined with the poison pill of a private right of action is legislation designed to enrich attorneys and keep housing providers in court. Ordinance 996 will drive away small landlords who are the ones most likely provide affordable rentals. These landlords will leave the market when they sell their rental homes. The shoreline supply of affordable rental housing will shrink. I urge you to reject it. It hurts women, children, and people of color. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, ma'am.
4: Next is Peter Lukovic.
14: Good evening, Mayor Scully, Deputy Mayor Robertson. My name is Peter Lukovic. My place of residence is in Seattle, and I'm here tonight Excuse me, on behalf of the Washington Business Properties Association. I'm speaking um, with regard to the uh, Tenant Protections Ordinance, asking you to consider extending the development of this ordinance beyond the anticipated possible date of December 7th for your action in order to form a work group that would more actively involve both tenants and landlords in order to evaluate some of the issues that you're considering. I would caution you that an ordinance of this sort in other jurisdictions has led to increased rents because landlords see the regulations coming. It decreases the total allowable or affordable units that are available in a community, as you previously heard. It has a reverse impact in driving housing costs higher in the construction phase in order to anticipate future increase either restrictions or regulations. And it has further negative impacts on equity and housing i would also point out that the residential landlord tenant act is currently under appeal with a petition for a writ of certiorari to the united states supreme court as you use it as as the basis for considering some of your actions and when you look around you to the city of kenmore you would also find that they're embroiled in litigation concerning a recent ordinance of a similar type that they passed in their city finally i would um, address some of the issues regarding notice and move-in fees, et cetera, um, sp- specifically 180 days is uh, very hard for landlords to forecast, or it will lead to 10% increases all the time every 180 days in order to take uh, to take cover and provide relief for the landlord. Finally, with respect to credit checks, the Social Security number is extremely important to be able to do that and for compliance. With the Service Members Civil Relief Act in the event of judgment, what's necessary, and eviction. I would commend those issues to you and ask you to consider extending that for a work group period. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Okay, next is Joe Levin. He originally signed up for remote public comment, but he's here in person.
15: Thank you. Uh, Joe Levine, uh, Gla Properties Group. We are a uh, privately owned housing provider. I've been owning and operating affordable housing in the city of Shoreline for 20 years now. We also own in Kenmore. Uh, we're one of the largest affordable housing providers in the city of Kenmore, and we do own some in Seattle. We're privately owned. We're small. Uh, I can tell you from firsthand, because these provisions in the um, Ordinance the proposed ordinance are very similar to what city of Kenmore passed about a year and a half ago But the city of Seattle has passed and from firsthand experience It's not working. It is raising rents When you have rent increase notices pushed out You're actually raising the rents Limits on late fees are raising rents. You're increasing the cost to housing providers is what you're doing And that's what's happening in Kenmore right now. It's happening in the city of Seattle. Uh, I can tell you they are reconsidering these similar ordinances in those jurisdictions right now. As mentioned earlier, the city of Kenmore actually is in litigation over this right now. A lawsuit has been filed. I think the most important thing is that um, it's raising the cost. It's not helping affordable housing. Uh, There are other ways to generate more affordable housing, and I've been directly involved in the multifamily housing legislation at the state of Washington and the city of Seattle for proposing more property tax exemptions, like you do on the multifamily tax exemption for new construction. We're working on getting that extended to provide incentive programs to generate more affordable housing. That's the way to approach it. But when you start restricting business owners and housing providers fees and their ability to do business and extend rent payments you, you're you hurting them you're not helping them and you're hurting renters also just to add the one it has unintended consequence on the restriction of social security number you're restricting the ability to criminally screen backgrounds thank you And that's hurting
1: thank you thank you, you can email much. us additional yeah. con- information thank, thank, thank
4: you. you next on the list is daniel bannon however i do not see him in the list of attendees oh here we go Go
16: ahead, Mr. Bannon. I can you hear me? Yes. Great, thank you. This is Daniel Bannon calling in on behalf of the Rental Housing Association of Washington and over 5,000 small housing providers across the state. Here to, cons- here to urge you to consider the harmful impacts of ordinance 996. Both 120 day and 180 day notice requirement for rent increases will result in rent increases that are based on an assumption of what costs might be incurred and the state of the rental market down the line. This creates uncertainty and is likely to lead to higher rent increases than it would be when the rent increases are based on what the market value is. We've seen the negative impacts of these excessive notice periods in rental markets all over Washington. Uh, Several people before me have already mentioned this, but in Seattle, for example, uh, 180 day rent increase notice is required, which is contributing to the rising cost of rent and the exodus of housing providers from that city. Next, restricting a housing provider's ability to screen someone using their social security number limits the information that a housing provider can learn about their prospective tenant. Uh, This is important not just for the housing provider's safety and the safety of the unit, but also the safety of other residents. Uh, It is crucial that prospective tenants are properly screened in order to make sure that they will not pose a threat to the safety of other residents. And there are other methods of screening someone uh, other than using their social security number, but it's important that we do not use language that will uh, mislead people into believing they cannot use a social security number at all. And lastly, requiring Just Cause to end a uh, lease term at its defined and previously agreed upon end will effectively invalidate term-based leases. Uh, lease is a mutual contract between two parties who have mutually decided to enter into it and it is unjust for the city to intervene, interfere in a private agreement between two consenting parties. Uh, please listen to the voices of small housing providers. We are telling you what has happened in other cities and what will happen to Shoreline if these measures pass. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
17: Mary Ellen Stone. Hi, this is Mary Ellen Stone. Um, I'm a resident of Shoreline and I came to this hearing in planning to um, urge you to support this uh, renters protection and I still want you to do that I urge you to do that but as I listen to the all the testimony I'm not an expert in this area I'm struck by all the different arguments but also the opportunity to say if many of our sister cities have enacted similar ordinances it would seem like we could get information from them and really make sure this is the sort of action that we want to take for the city of shoreline i think we all want to do everything we can to end homelessness or unstably housed individuals and we know there's going to be multiple strategies none of which are going to be the silver bullet for this so i would urge the council and staff to, to look at this carefully and see where we can find some examples, information from other cities and put something in place that will protect, um, protect renters in our city. Thank you so much. And thanks for the hard work that you're doing.
18: Thank you, Ms.
4: Stone.
17: Eric
18: Brand. Hi, my name is Eric Brand. Can you hear me okay? You can. Uh, my name is Eric Brand. I'm a medical doctor living in the city of Bellevue. I am a member of Rental Housing Association of Washington, but I don't officially represent them. I'm the accidental landlord. My wife is a immigrant, a person of color who bootstrapped her way into having a home. And uh, that is now our rental house now that we live together. So I'm learning about um, a lot of these issues, especially facing the city of Seattle. And I'm actually very excited about the opportunity that the city of Shoreline has to learn from the mistakes of others that are, for instance, driving landlords and housing providers out of the city of Seattle. Um, I am. Uh, my family was uh, homesteaded this place in the 1890s. So I'm uh, part of a sixth generation family interested in the long-term stability and viability of our housing in this area. And what I'm seeing, uh, echoing the uh, what other people have said, is I'd like to see a, I'd like to see this issue in Shoreline addressed in a coordinated fashion with recognition of the up and downstream. Uh, 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 things that affect people that are providing housing. For instance, during a recent remodel from a lot of damage that was done to my private house by a renter, um, I had to uh, do a lot of fixing. And just in one week, the costs of uh, my materials at Home Depot went up 13%, which really messes with your budget. And um, I was unable to pass these costs on, uh, especially with six months of anticipation. Additionally, you know, uh, trying to evict somebody used to lose three months of rent. Now we're losing 12 months' rent due to the eviction process, uh, which means we're having to be much more strict with who we let into our housing, which other people have, have discussed. So I'd like to see this approached in a very uh, careful and coordinated fashion, not leaving uh, people providing housing holding the bag. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brand.
4: Stephanie Angelis.
19: Can you hear me all
1: right?
19: We can. We can. Oh, sorry, I just lost my notes on my phone. Do you mind if I start over in a minute?
1: Like now? We need to. We need to keep moving on. Can you riff? Uh,
19: I can. I'll just go off cuff. Sure. Yeah. Go ahead. Um. Hello, I'm Stephanie Angelus, and I am a affordable housing landlord in both Shoreline and Lake Forest Park. I'm also a realtor for Keller Williams, Greater Seattle and a big proponent of tenant rights. I um, actually am speaking for someone that can't be here tonight. They are um, unable to use our system. They couldn't call in on zoom. So I want to make sure I get her story out there. She was living in Shoreline and The landlord basically refused to fix her unit after a tree fell on her house. She is a veteran, disabled veteran. And after this tree fell on the house, they just put plastic over the roof. Water was still infiltrating. There was open asbestos um, in her unit. The city of Shoreline did nothing. They would not condemn the unit. They would not do anything to protect her. And in the end, this person ended up choosing to be homeless rather than being forced to stay in this unit. So it's a very important thing to think about the people that we are affecting. I completely hear these other opinions about, you know, how do we not pass on the cost to our landlords? How do we keep people getting their background checks? I definitely support background checks. I think that it's important to have them still use a social security number, use an electronic uh, form so that you're not actually receiving that social security number and you can just use the information. But more importantly, that they can use this information in a way that is uh, verifiable and that they can't just use it for potentially discrimination. Um, How do we know that a landlord is comparing people directly and using a method that doesn't leave room for picking and choosing? Um, So it's really important to think through what the final outcome will be. But there's a reason that I supported the um, no cause evictions. I was one of very few landlords that did and at the time it really clarified in the law. Thank you Ms. Pens- Angelis. When to leave for despite COVID. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
20: Kathleen Russell. Kathleen Russell resident of Shoreline on behalf of Safe Shoreline Trees. In advance of Council's meeting on December 4, Safe Shirling Trees asks the city manager or a council member to pull the contract for the North 145th construction from the consent calendar and move it to an agenda item so there can be answers to public questions about tree removals on North 145th. The public has been unaware of the number of trees to be removed until informed on October 26, 2023. We ask for time reserved for public comment to council and staff response time. We have questions about when the notices will be placed on the 322 trees to be be cut down for the roundabouts and phase one construction, and how the public can comment on tree removals for phases two and three of the North 145th construction, which as we understand are still in the design stage. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Ms. Russell.
4: Derek Blackwell.
1: Go ahead, Mr. Blackwell.
21: Yes, I'm sorry. Hello, this is Derek Blackwell. I live nearby the Madeira Project on Linden Avenue. Here again with the neighborhood concern for long-term traffic hazards. There are many other reasons neighbors are upset about having this huge building so inappropriately situated. Some of us thought a day in court might gain us something, even if we lost. We've gained nothing. Now that construction has started, there's not much left to fight for. But all along, some of us felt opening another driveway to the garage to ease traffic tension would be a pretty small thing to ask for compared to what we would really have liked to see. Some people felt the building needed a greater setback so it doesn't effectively make an already narrow street even narrower with so many delivery vehicles expected. That would have been a much greater change in plan to ask for. A related problem, residents do not want a new sidewalk opposite the development and having their (coughs) lawns and trees jeopardized and properties devalued. Everyone thinks a wide new sidewalk in front of Madeira and Brea should be plenty. I called Public Works to see if we could tie these related issues together for better planning. Trisha Junkie called back. I learned the sidewalk (coughs) plan is in diagram form only so far, indicating sidewalks on both sides of the street, but it's not set in stone. It's about two years away, and she says the city will hammer out the details in a year's time. Uh, Last year now, I told her that I think the city will likely decide the street needs to be widened, and that putting off planning this would result in the widening coming from the opposite side of the street from development, our side, whereas it should come from development. By now, it's much too late for that. It does not appear to be too late to increase garage access. This is a three year project just getting started. That's why I'm here again to implore council to communicate this to city staff. Our efforts have failed. Tricia agreed this is a problem and told me how Amazon vehicles double park in her neighborhood. She was very generous with her time, and although I addressed several follow up emails to her, I have not heard back. Can you help? Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mr. Blackwell. Did our first signee ever appear i do not
4: see christina in the list of attendees
1: okay um then i will go ahead and close the public comment period uh, and move on to the next agenda item which is the consent calendar is there a motion
22: i move for the approval of the consent calendar
1: second thank you Uh, approval of the consent calendar has been moved and seconded will the clerk please call the vote
4: Yes. Sorry. I need to Okay. Councilmember Mark. Present. Aye. 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 Councilmember McConnell. Aye. Councilmember Pobe? Aye. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale. Aye. Councilmember Roberts.
5: Aye, I think we're all tired today. Yeah.
4: Mayor Scully.
5: Aye. Okay, the
1: consent calendar uh, passes unanimously, uh, which brings us to the first item on the agenda, which is uh, item 8A, and we have Meng Liu and Sarah Lane presenting the staff report, and Christy Hopkins available for question on Zoom. While they're getting set up, I will read the title of the agenda item, which is Action on Ordinance Number 993, Adopting the Mid Biennial Budget Modification to the 2023 2024 Final Biennial Budget.
23: Good evening, um, Deputy Mayor, Mayor, and Council. So, tonight we will be um, talking about the 2023 2024 mid biannual budget update uh, for action. Um, so. <laughs> As a quick reminder on where we are in the process, so on November 6th, staff has presented the 2023-2024 Mid-Biannual Budget Update, including the Revenue Sources and Property Tax for 2024. On the same night, uh, Council have uh, has held two public hearings, one for property tax and one for the Mid-Biannual Budget Impact Fees and Fee Schedule. So the property tax, impact fees, and fee schedule are on the consent calendar, so the only item that's on the action calendar tonight is the adoption for the 2023-2024 mid budget. Um, So, um, there are actually four uh, potential amendments that are submitted after the staff report is um, submitted. Um, So, the first um, item the staff will recommend is to adopt the Ordinance 993 amending the 2023-2024 biennial budget as presented. So I will now pass it on to Deputy Mayor. Okay, um,
1: thank you so much. So this is an action item, and we'd like to start with a motion from the council. That's Roberts.
5: Thank you, yeah. Deputy Mayor. I move to adopt Ordinance 993, amending the 2023-24-24 Biennial Budget as presented. Second.
1: Thank you, we have a motion and a second, and um, any discussion on yes.
5: the item? Thank, thank you, Deputy Mayor, and I, first of all, I want to thank the staff for putting this together and all of the updates that were provided to us. I think there's a lot of good work that's been put into the budget. Um, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we uh, talked about this, I mean, having a one person sort of helping with uh, communication on our public works project I think is going to be very good. Um, the other and the other stuff is also very good. I do support that. Um, I do have deputy mayor. I do have three amendments, uh, four amendments. I'd like to propose. Uh, and I will start with number one. Um, uh, as you, well, I'll, I'll make the, uh, I'll make the amendment and then we I'll talk okay. about them. Uh, so I move to increase the general fund appropriation as shown in the proposed ordinance 993 by 50,000 for the human services program with the allocation of 50,000 for the continuation of the grocery card program in 2024. Second.
1: second. Oh, go ahead. You have a second.
5: Oh. Thank you. So uh, you, as you see on the screen, uh, these funds are coming from general fund balance um, And the 50,000 grocery cards is going to the holiday basket program that the city's been providing, participating in with the Shoreline PTSA, Shoreline Fire, and the YMCA. Uh, When we talked about this, uh, when we talked about uh, the the as we're ramping down some of the COVID funding that we received, uh, one of the things that we uh, all, I believe, we all lamented when we saw that what was being proposed was the discontinuation of the uh, gift card programs. Looking at what we have in terms of available balance, and this is being a one time funding, uh, I think we can continue the program for another year.
1: Thank you, Councilmember Roberts. Any other discussion or anyone likes to like the way on this one? Great,
4: let's call a vote. Mayor Scully? Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale? Aye. Councilmember Povey?
22: Aye.
4: Councilmember Roberts?
22: Aye.
4: Councilmember McConnell? Aye. Council Member Mork? Aye. Deputy Mayor Robertson? Aye.
1: Amendment one passes.
5: Thank you. Um, Deputy Mayor, I move to increase the general fund appropriation as shown in the proposed ordinance 993 by $25,000 for the human, service program, human services program with the allocation of $25,000 for the continuation of the utility assistance program for shoreline residents in 2024. Second. And Council I'll Member say, Roberts? again, mm-hmm. this is a continuation of a program, an extension of a program that we already provide. We know from experience that, uh, and from what we've been learned, we, in order to keep people out of homelessness, we need to keep people in their homes. And uh, I think we have the budget to do so.
1: Thank you. Any other discussion on this amendment? Councilmember Hobie.
22: Thank you. Just a clarification. Is this totally different from what uh, Hopelink gets uh, from the city? to provide, or in providing utility assistance?
1: I see from the audience.
23: It's, it's Well, Bethany is our uh, expert on this, and she is nodding yes. Um, so this will be additional funding on top of that. Okay. Mayor Scully.
3: Thank you. I just had a question on uh, a comment the staff made on the slide. It, It says that staff proposes that in 2024, we would conduct a formal application process for the utility and or rent assistance. Could you explain what kind of a formal application process you would like to see?
24: We generally have about two or three vendors that would uh, that are current human services providers in Shoreline that we would look to to do a pretty uh, brief and targeted outreach um, and conduct a, a pretty brief RFP because we do know um, that they are current service providers and we know the level of service uh, and uh, the customer service they're able to provide um, and so that's what we would look to do in very quickly if this is approved.
3: All right. thank you. I, I fully support this. I, I note that our you know, our, our budget is, is just tiny when it comes to human services, and I'm generally always supportive of providing more direct aid, and I support this. I don't wanna see any of it spent on an application process, and if we can do that with the existing staff funding, then that's fine. Otherwise, our human services providers, to my understanding, to date, have been very responsive and very accountable, and I don't see that we need to go through a giant Set of hoops to to requalify folks that we already work with. I'd like to see that money put straight into action. Um, that's not part of the vote. We're just voting for the money. But I'm just noting that as a as a comment, and I will certainly be voting yes on this.
1: Thank you, Mayor Scully. Um, thank you. Any other comments on this amendment? Great. Let's please vote.
4: Deputy Mayor Robertson. Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale. Aye. Councilmember Poby. Aye. Councilmember Roberts. Aye. Councilmember McConnell. Aye. Mayor Scully. Aye. Councilmember Mark.
5: Aye.
1: Great. Thank you. Uh, any other amendments? And
5: Deputy Mayor, I move to increase the general fund appropriation as shown in the proposed ordinance 993 by 25000 for the human services program with the allocation of $25,000 for the continuation of the rental assistance program for shoreline residents in 2024. Second. And I believe this is an additional money, um, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, Carry on Councilmember Roberts. I've just increased. same same thing. I don't need to s- s- spell it out more um, Again, I agree with the mayor and his comments that the quicker we can get this out the door and choose a provider That would be better best
1: Any discussion on amendment three council Member McConnell?
2: Yeah, I just want to say I'm going to be supporting that mainly because uh, particularly for seniors uh, with fixed incomes this is I think we all agree how important it will be for uh, rental assistance uh, in a inflationary economy. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Great, let's um, vote on Amendment 3, please.
2: Councilmember Mork. Aye.
4: Councilmember Roberts. Aye. Councilmember Popey. Aye. Mayor Scully. Aye. Deputy Mayor Robertson. Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale. Aye. Councilmember McConnell. Aye.
1: Okay, for the record, that was Amendment 3 that passed unanimous, unanimously, as did Amendment 2. Thank you, Councilmember Roberts.
5: Thank you. I move to increase the road capital fund appropriation as shown in proposed Ordinance 993 by $75,000 for community engagement and creation of a concept plan for Furlands North right of way, specifically the southern diagonal leg between 185th and 188th streets.
22: I second that.
1: Okay, um, you have a second would you like to discuss yes,
5: uh, thank you uh, if we if everyone remembers we had a discussion about Furland's way earlier this year um, I think that putting money in the budget uh, Even if it we're not able to fully allocate it in 2024 shows that we are committed to this project um, we never we don't really know when or if any developments going to happen on that street and the sooner we can get started on uh, working with the community to design to design what that that right of way looks like, uh, I think, will be beneficial to our city. And it was and it was discussed in public comment. There is definitely historical historic um, uh, historic nature and historic value in that road in that segment, especially that I think we can uh, capitalize on. Thank you, Deputy Mayor.
1: Thank you. Any other comments, Councilmember Morg? Uh, thank you.
25: I strongly support this. Uh, There are more than 2,000 apartment units going in short proximity to this area, and I really think that we need to be thinking of places that people could walk to, and I strongly support this, uh, starting to look at at possibilities, uh, historic nature, the the need for, again, for a place uh, really lead to it, and I want to know what the public would like. And I think this is an excellent way, Councilmember Roberts, for getting started. Thank you for submitting this amendment. Mayor Scully.
3: Thank you, I, I too am supportive of this. This idea was pitched to me eight years ago when I first stood on council by, by Bonnie Beery, who's one of the citizens who lives near there. I thought it was a great idea at the time, and it sort of hit like procedural obstructions, it wasn't really a park. And so did it go in the prosa plan and different issues why it never sort of came to the center. And honestly, I let it slip by the wayside a couple of years into that. And so I wanna thank Councilmember Mork and Roberts for picking it back up. I think having a place making place there is fantastic. My only caution is that we not get too carried away with what it looks like early on and with how much money we put into it and the citizen expectations stay fairly reasonable that we're not likely to drop everything citywide and focus only on this area, and it's probably going to be incremental. But step one is absolutely getting a study going and, and uh, collecting public comment, and I look forward to seeing that process play out.
1: Thank you, Mayor. Any other comments? Um, I'd like to just add that I, too, will be supporting um, this amendment, and s- staff has noted that due to work plan constraints, they might not start immediately, but I really like the idea of us as a council saying we are committed to this plan um, and, and making it official that we want to move forward in the near future. So with that, I think we can call the vote on Amendment 4.
4: Councilmember Roberts. Aye. Councilmember Popey. Aye. Mayor Scully. Aye. Councilmember Mork. Aye. Councilmember McConnell. Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale. Aye. Deputy Mayor Robertson.
1: Aye. Okay. Um, Any other amendments? Anyone would like to? Okay. Okay, Great. Um, Can someone remind me, do we need to amend the initial um, motion or is it now just we get to vote on it as amended? Is that correct?
4: You can vote on it as amended.
1: Great. So let's go ahead and take action on Ordinance 993. With that vote.
4: Okay. Councilmember Roberts? Aye. Councilmember Poby. Aye. Councilmember McConnell? Aye. Councilmember Mork? Aye. Councilmember Ramsdale? Aye. Deputy Mayor Robertson? Aye. Mayor Scully? Aye. And
1: um, Ordinance 993 is officially passed uh, unanimously as amended. Thank you, everybody. And we will move on to item. 9A which is discussion of ordinance number 996 establishing a new chapter chapter 9.35 of the shoreline municipal code regarding residential tenant protections and because there was so much interest in this I will just note this is a study session um, for discussion no action will be taken tonight Um, Bethany Wolbert Dunn is here to present the staff report for us
24: Thank you, and with that, uh, Mayor and Council, I will proceed with the presentation. Um, As we know tonight, we're here to uh, discuss with Council proposed tenant protections, which uh, are under Ordinance 996. So a little bit of background. According to uh, census, 39% of uh, Shoreline's housing units are renter-occupied. The Washington State Landlord Tenant Act provides basic tenant protections to shoreline residents. There is not currently any other uh, protections provided uh, under Shoreline Municipal Code. We found that through the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, economic instability and the housing shortage in the region made um, renting, uh, and as we've also heard tonight, managing uh, renters uh, more challenging. And after many of the COVID-related tenant protections expired, there has been an increased movement to extend tenant protections uh, in the region. So Council, uh, this is the third time it's been presented for discussion at Council. Uh, You first held a discussion on uh, tenant protections, uh, laid out a lot of background information in June of 2022. Further discussions were held at your strategic retreat uh, earlier this year in March of 2023. At that time, there was a direction from council to return with a proposed set of tenant protections. And uh, we are looking for tenant protections that are viewed as critical to ensure housing stability and that stable housing creates equitable communities, which uh, follows our anti-racism resolution. The next few slides are a uh, exact um, copy of the chart that is listed in the staff report. And there are six uh, tenant protections that we are bringing forward for discussion, or to start the discussion tonight. One, uh, the first one being notice of rent increase. Currently the state law is a notice of 60 days for rent increases is required. Uh, We are, proposing 128 day notice, or 120, my apologies, day notice for rent increases greater than 3% but less than 10% or 180 day for base rent increases of 10% or greater. And uh, if you note on the attachment B, there is a a summary chart that compares what's being projected, proposed here in Shoreline along with our other cities and the state law. Uh, so a lot of that has been modeled off of what is, uh, is enacted in uh, some of our neighboring jurisdictions. Second protection, it relates to move-in fees, security deposits, etc. Uh, state law does not uh, address uh, cost of move-in fees and we are proposing that all move-in fees and security deposits cannot exceed one month's rent and additionally allowing for installment payments in certain situations. And those are outlined and detailed uh, within the proposed municipal code. Late fees, uh, the state does not address uh, late fees. We have proposed that late fees do not exceed one and a half percent of the tenant's monthly rent. The fourth one is a right to a payment plan. Again, for upfront fees, deposit, first and last month rent. Uh, The state does allow installment payments, uh, and we would propose that those additional uh, payments systems would be allowed, and the time frame would depend on the lease length. Next one is alteration of a rent due date uh, to um, if if, uh, requested by the tenant, and they're on a fixed governmental source of income that that would, uh, if requested, they would be able to have that match up their due date of rent uh, on the date they receive that monthly government assistance payment. And then finally, uh, barring the requirement of a social security number, state does not address this, and uh, we are proposing that a social security number cannot be required. So a few just other uh, things I'd like to note, as you will note on here, we are not recommending any additional uh, provisions under uh, what's called just cause. Uh, As some other cities have done, we are not proposing that. And um, just as a comment on the eviction uh, that was made earlier today, we are not, uh, my response in the uh, in your folder is not meant to represent what is actually happening. Just that it does not. There's no delay to being able to file an eviction. Uh, it, it, as the current, as a commenter uh, did note, it often takes much, much longer due to backup of courts and other and other procedural reasons. So this proposed ordinance uh, provides again for a private right of action. And what that means is that uh, it's the tenant's responsibility to take this either depending on um, the amount of um, possible fees related to this, either in small claims court or superior court. Uh, Similar protections have been enacted by neighboring uh, King County cities. And so we look to those to, so there'd be, again, some regularity there. And we do plan continued education and outreach through direct communication uh, and social media, whether that be current articles, information to our, um, and information to our human services agencies. So this evening, uh, the plan would be to propose, or discuss the proposed tenant protections, and that the council would provide direction for a final ordinance or continued study. AND IT'S CURRENTLY SCHEDULED TO RETURN FOR ACTION ON DECEMBER 4TH. AND WITH THAT, TURN IT OVER TO COUNCIL FOR QUESTIONS AND DISCUSSION. THANK YOU.
1: THANK YOU, MS. Wolberg dunn WHO um, WOULD LIKE TO KICK US OFF TONIGHT? COUNCILMEMBER Mark? THANK YOU.
25: I REALLY APPRECIATE YOUR PRESENTATION. Uh, One of the things I was curious on is why you chose these six areas as being the ones to start out with, the ones you felt were most important.
24: Great. That's a great question. Um, I think, as been noted, is uh, there is a fine line between too many protections, and we we are looking for something that achieves uh, additional protections for the tenant so that they do have, for example, with the... um, Length of uh, notice of rent increase so that they have the ability to either look at their own household budget Make changes to those budget or look to move if they just have decided that that um, That it's too high of a fee and they need to look other places so that they have more notice Uh, So that's one that is for example very important Uh, if you look at uh, attachment B that has the comparison Uh, There there is a wide range and you you will note that Seattle has a a large number of those and um, There are reasons that they've made those decisions to do that Um, We don't also have the ability right now um, With this private right of action there is really not an increase in staff need to monitor that We would if if someone were to call us we would be referring them to to the tenants union for example, for assistance or Eastside Legal, or there's some other um, uh, available. Now, I will say most of the time, or I would say all of the time, uh, any of those nonprofit um, legal entities really only have the ability to get involved if they're already at eviction. So, this does take, this just gives the ability of renters to have a little bit more stability in when rent changes um, and uh, just felt it was a, a good balance between additional rent of protections, but not uh, a much larger amount.
25: One of the comments made was about the tree falling on the apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the National League of Cities, one of the uh, events I went to, there were several cities waxing eloquently about how wonderful they felt that their uh, inspection program was, and I was curious: uh, a, if uh, if if, an, if the city would have taken no action uh, w- with the tree falling thing, and two, uh, what your views are on uh, rental inspection program.
24: Great. I, I, I hesitate to uh, comment on the tree falling and shrilling because I don't have any information on exactly what happened. But in terms of rental um, regist- registration or inspection programs, we have looked at other cities that do have those in place, uh, such as Tacoma. Bellingham is another one. Um, I know like Bellingham uh, at least as of like three years ago, we're charging about $10 a year just to have uh, it, it uh, your rental um, Uh, registered with the city and I know Tacoma also had that to make sure that they didn't have um, landlords that were quote-unquote like vacant landlord you know if you lived the landlord lived a certain distance away they had to have someone local that would manage the property or be available to manage the property so there are reasons for that Um, it would I think at this point we're not recommending it. it again it's a little bit of a step Kind of too far for the first um, movement here, and um, it would also cost. It would not pay for itself at a at a small, you know, ten dollar a month or ten dollar a year or fifteen or twenty dollar a year fee, and um, we're just not sure that it provides uh, the level of um, additional support uh, that we would be looking for in a, any landlord protections. Uh,
25: when I came, the. W- The one that really stuck out to me as being unusual was the leafy one, uh, as you could tell from my question. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the public comment uh, really makes sense to me. So I I cannot support that one without uh, further ado. And I hadn't realized, uh, you know, there was other interesting comments uh, made that uh, suggested that some of the other ones may have CONSEQUENCES THAT ARE NOT IMMEDIATELY OBVIOUS. Uh, SO uh, I'M INTRIGUED WITH THE POSSIBILITY OF uh, PUTTING ADDITIONAL TIME INTO THINKING ABOUT IT. BUT I WOULD LIKE TO HEAR WHAT MY COLLEAGUES HAVE TO SAY. THANK YOU.
1: MAYOR SCULLY.
26: NOW THAT I'M UNMUTED.
3: Um, THANK YOU. I I HAD A FEW COMMENTS. for starters, I, I appreciate the effort that's gone into this, and this is a highly contentious topic that has been argued back and forth you know, in a lot of jurisdictions, and I think we've all been able to track that, and I don't think we heard anything tonight that was surprising. Um, I, I had a couple of specific comments. My overall comment is these protections are necessary, not because of good landlords, but because some of these things get abused, and they may not, the abuse may not affect a broad swath of people, But if there is even one person who has their rent increased 1,000% or ends up at the end of a lease and all of a sudden they're on a month-to-month which goes up 25% and they were at the limit anyway, well, those folks end up homeless and it's regulating that type of bad behavior that this legislation is designed to combat. Anything which potentially increases a cost to a landlord, potentially increases the rent they charge, I hope that landlords don't use this kind of legislation as an excuse to raise rents beyond what they need to. I suspect some landlords do exactly that, and I I find that reprehensible. Um, To the extent these kind of measures do genuinely trigger a 0.005% need to increase rent, well, that's invariably the cost of any protections. There is some impact, I get that. This is to protect the few at what I hope is a very slight cost to the many. I wanna address a couple specific things. Um, there was a comment uh, about invalidating term-based leases and the, th- the comment that it was unjust. And that relates to the conversion to, to the just cause eviction at the end of a term-based lease. Term-based lease is of course, you're gonna lease this place for a year, here's your rent, it's not going up. At the end of it, it then goes to a month to month and that's unrestricted. Landlords want that because they want to be able to go back and say well gosh your lease is over here's what you've got to do if you want to stay here again this is regulating the bad behavior of the few hopefully the many they won't even notice it they'll simply be able to continue with their tenants because they're doing the right thing and not jacking rents through the roof regardless i want to also talk about the social security number and that's also an abuse thing if we require a social security number it becomes easy to discriminate against people on a variety of reasons including that they may not have one they may be a lawful immigrant but they don't have a social security number Um, we want to make sure that people are not pushed out of housing for the wrong reasons and unfortunately it's difficult to police so one of the ways we do that is by not letting landlords have access to a piece of information that quite frankly they don't actually need as one person noted there are other ways to screen Finally, I wanna put in a word for the private right of action and a comment that was made that only the lawyers benefit. The staff comment a minute ago was that the public aid uh, providers really only step in an eviction, which is usually too late. What a private right of action does, and this mirrors just myriad statutes, not just in our state, but across the nation and in the federal law too, says, gosh, if you've got this small issue, it's $1,500, which is a lot of money to a renter, but for a lawyer, you know, no lawyer's gonna take that and you can't afford to pay a lawyer for that. What a private right of action does is it says, gosh, you can sue your landlord for that $1,500 and your attorney gets their fees paid. It doesn't mean the lawyers win because if landlords have a just defense and they win, well, you don't get the attorney's fees. If they don't, then ultimately they can end up paying a lot. What it does do is it encourages settlement. If a landlord has that exposure, they're liable to say, okay, fine, you can have your $1,500 back Now we've got the problem solved without the need for all kinds of government intervention. So I I wish we didn't need to do this gap filling. I think we could study this forever. And there absolutely are some contrasting uh, values to weigh. But for me, they weigh in favor of these protections because I think we've heard enough stories and seen enough stories in this jurisdiction and others to where we need to have more protections in place than we do to make sure individuals are not made unhoused by the choices of a few bad landlords. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mayor Scully. Any other comments from Council? Council Member Roberts. Uh,
5: Thank you, Mayor. Or Deputy Mayor, sorry. Um, This is a... I appreciate all the comments that have been made to to date. I appreciate all... This is a... It's good to see people commenting to the Council about how... And helping us, inform us what and how these policies impact at the individual level, whether it's from a landlord or from a tenant. And I think that it's refreshing and good to hear that on this council. I mean, often uh, in an era where we have very little coverage of what we do as a council, to have people come and talk and sort of explain what the impacts are, what the life, likely impacts are of, of policy is, is good and healthy. And I've learned a lot, um, even over the last few days, just sort of looking at this and thinking about this and uh, sort of going around and sort of <laughs> really th- thinking and rethinking about this. There are a couple, uh, and I'll say uh, broadly, I think what I've said before to this, to my colleagues, this is a type of policy that probably is better at the state level than in individual cities because Many residents uh, and many, many residents of Washington They looked where they end up settling is where they can afford And it may be in Shoreline it may be in Kenmore. It may be in Edmonds It may be in Mount Lake Terrace. They're not the place where they end up living is where they can afford and what makes sense for them in terms of all their other needs including whether they have children access to services and the like and not necessarily what policies the city has in terms of protection for them and in in many ways it's disappointing to see the state legislature not take action especially as you're starting to see a growing patchwork of, of laws that if you Just happen to be on um, my side of 25th, you're going to have protections. If you live on the other side of 25th, well, you're not going to, or 30th, you're not going to have many protections uh, or the same level of protections. So, I mean, that's something sort of broadly that we have to weigh and understand. And I think again, generally, is that this is better as a statewide policy. But that's not what we have before us. What we have before us is a policy that's been brought to us, and we have to consider the merits of the policy itself, and not we are not going to be deferring to the state legislature at this moment. Um, so with that there I do have a couple questions. Um, the first question is and I raised this uh, sort of later in the today is this question about limitation on uh, late fees Uh, What the policy is being proposed is a 1.5% cap on late fees and There is a question in state I offered this question that under if they're, you brought to court landlords are capped at I believe are capped at $75 um, But that's not really stated in the ordinance or not stated in state law currently So can you sort of help? I'm not clear what? Yeah. Uh, I'm not the lawyer. So I would appreciate some clarification of whether they're to what degree that $75 provision sort of is a cap on late fees or is not a cap on late fees
24: so i'll take a stab at this and then i'll turn it over to margaret if i've miss uh, spoken at all that section that you referred to which is let me look uh rcw 59.18.410 is part of the eviction process the formal eviction process so that that limit of 75 dollars is if there is a judgment against the tenant that they would have to pay. So it's it has nothing to do with. Uh, it's not related, I should say, to uh, late fees on monthly rent. Margaret, did I? That's correct. Okay.
5: Yeah. So, but so if if something does go to court, then that's how much they can collect. The
27: the judge can award a late fee. Provided that it's in the lease agreement and provided it does not exceed that amount So that's something that can be included on top of the rent and other damages that the landlord is seeking and that is a statutory limit that the judge um, Has
5: And that late fee is in addition to any late fees that exist in the lease or is that the total amount of late fees per month?
27: that would be what that would be based on the lease agreement if the, if it was in the lease agreement and it would be based on the the landlord going through Bill. the the process so the fees that the court would award um, would depend on what it says in the lease but it could not be higher than seventy five dollars so in this case if if we are enforcing a late fee of 10%, then the question would be if the lease agreement had something more than 10%. And if it didn't, then the judge would award that amount, not the $75.
5: So, but, so a landlord could impose a late fee greater than $75. And that could be collected in an pr- agreement between the tenant and the landlord. But if the tenant takes, or the landlord takes it to court, then the limit can only be $75. Is that a way of That's dis-
27: what the statute says.
5: OK. So there, there is no cap on late fees, but it, unless it goes to court, and then there's a cap.
24: So the, the 1.5% of a late fee would be a monthly.
5: But I understand. Right, right, and, yeah. But that's a, I mean, that's what Shoreline's. Right. proposed. I'm just trying to figure right. out what, the, right. what we are now. Um, It was described in public comment that the proposed late fee, which I believe would be $15 per thousand, um, is currently less than what the city charges for uh, wastewater or other late fees. Can you clarify, or do you have the information? I do
24: not know the wastewater late fees, so we can find that out, though.
5: Okay, I mean, I think that when you think about what the fees are I'm not I do do not like the fact that there's no cap on what or on what a late fee could be. I'm not I'm not convinced what that what the right number is. I know our many of our surrounding jurisdictions have gone with the one and a half percent but I do understand the concerns of landlords of needing to uh, Rent can't be rent should not be something that's pushed off um, Necessarily I also um, I have A Different perspective. I come from this with a different perspective of Mayor Scully in terms of a private right to action I think that there are limitations on a private right to action I think that not every resident has access or ability to go to court and I think one of the challenges with the way the ordinance is presented is that if there are truly bad actors here actors who continually to abuse the system continue to flaunt the laws that we pass there's no opportunity, then specific under this what's being proposed for the city to take in and come in um, and be, serve and pr- protect uh, landlords and protect and really to protect the laws that we pass and enforce the laws that we pass. So the way it's written is very concerning that it's it only, it's a tenant would only go for minimal amount of fees um, and potentially back rent depending on the circumstance uh, with. Sort of limited caps of what could happen, but each uh, tenant would have to go in each time or each month that this occurs, um, theoretically. There's no uh there's lots there's just lots of challenges in order for the tenant to try to recover and that presumes that the tenant is going to have resources and ability to go to court uh to take the time day off and go to court to actually pursue these claims so i th- i'm concerned with the fact that the city does not have the ability to come in and do enforcement so those are my comments for right now thank you deputy mayor thank you council
1: member any other Councilmember Amstel.
28: Thank you, Deputy Mayor. Um, Yeah, a a couple of things uh, that kind of came to mind based on some of the testimony that was provided uh, during the public comment um, period. Um, I I am kind of wondering if, um, do we we know um, for a fact that like uh, rents have increased in those uh, uh, um, cities where there are these restrictions? I mean, there's a lot of reasons why rents increase. You know, there's lots of variables involved in rent increases, and and I'm wondering t- to what degree could these um, restrictions uh, um, or tenant right um, ordinances affect those increases in rent? And the, and the other thing is uh, about um, one one gentleman mentioned that there was a reduction in available uh, affordable units as a result of um, uh, uh, the the ordinances in in Seattle and, and nearby cities. And I'm kind of wondering as uh, I'm wondering about if you'd be able to answer any, that, that question. And similar to um, Councilmember Mork, I'd, I would like to see a little bit more time to kind of look at this um, a little more thoroughly. Thank you. Uh,
24: related to your con- or your question about raising, are or or rents going up? I think it's fair to say rents are going up most places, including Shoreline. I don't think we have enough information to say what the exact source of that is, whether it's just the rising cost of everything here, whether that's just general inflation, whether that's a, a commenter, I believe, mentioned building costs, right? The, the wood and everything else is, is a higher. So I it, uh, no study that I've seen that's not saying that there's not one out there and that we can look for is providing a direct correlation to increased tenant protections. Again, if you look at the comparison document, you'll see Seattle has a ton more. Um, And so I think there perhaps could be a little bit more of a explanation there to see why, as we had some folks comment that they're choosing to divest in in Seattle due to some of those. Um, I am fortunate to be able to work with other human services colleagues on the east side and in the north end. And um, this topic has not come up that has drawn a direct conclusion, but we can find out more information and see what studies and other information would be out there to better answer your question.
1: Thank you, Councilmember. Councilmember Council, Member.
22: Council Member All right, thank you. First of all, I just want to appreciate each and everyone coming out, and this is the beauty about our community. People are passionate about what they do. Uh, when we first discussed this, I said, where there's no law, there's transgression. And I believe that a transaction is between two people. And when there's law protecting both parties, uh, there's unity, there's peace. I so much appreciate the mayor's comments, I see if he had access to my notes, so I'll make it quick. Whereas a landlord refuses to make repairs and still wants to collect rent. 10% increase. We don't see that in our annual salaries. So if I'm paying $2,000 per month and you're going to increase it by 10%, and I said, respectfully, give me a notice of six months. What have I done wrong? I think it's just fair to have that $200 in addition to my rent. Uh, in the, in about, I would say in May of 2023, there were uh, two tenants who live across on the other side, close to 145th, one for the faith, whose rents were increased by $250. And this was a single mother with two children. Now she lives in Everett. So people take the laws into their hands and do whatever because nobody is possibly watching. But at this point, as the mayor pointed out, this is for possibly just a fraction of bad landlords. This is meant to protect everybody. And so I, I haven't really seen anything wrong in here, except that we appreciate the comments, personally appreciate the comments, and it is not an objective to shut down any business or a mom-and-pop business in the city. I strongly believe that is for the betterment of our city. Each and everyone needs protection. Look at the number of the, of the units we are putting up. Uh, so shall we continue to put up buildings and not protect the people that live in it? Thank you.
1: Thank you. Councilmember McConnell.
2: Uh, thank you. Um, so so we've heard from tenants, but we've also heard from a lot of landlord, uh, not just individual ones, but groups. And I really strongly suggest, as some council members have suggested, that we maybe don't have enough information to decide on what late fee percentages are. For example, I have been doing this personally myself. I probably would consider myself a mom. And POPs uh, landlord I own them I manage them and uh, and people are selling them in Seattle because I know from a Facebook group because of the onerous uh, conditions that have been placed and it would be great if we had more follow-up on on some of this but let me try to be concise on some of uh, the issues that we've talked about here I don't have any problems with longer notices. I think that's great. Uh, I think most landlords have no motivation to move people out of their units that are working for them because it costs more money in advertisement, etc. Cleaning that maybe don't, doesn't have to be done because the people living there are you know taking care of it, but once somebody leaves, you really want to thoroughly clean it up a lot more than maybe the way they were living. And, and that's just a real general Comment. So we don't want vacancies, and some of the things um, that you're worried about actually create vacancies. But I, I will tell you that there are so many unintended consequences here that we're talking about, and it is sad that we haven't had more committee vetting on this, because I think, short of what Seattle's done to their market do we want to be the next ones we want people to see some affordability here because if not they're going to be really going out to lake stevens and uh, much further points north and south which they're probably already doing but there are so many things that landlords cannot control to control the rent because the rent itself the market is controlled really by a lot more things outside of our control and specifically su- supply and demand. So, again, I'm going back to the fact that if we reduce the supply and the demand doesn't, isn't reduced at the same time, we're just going to, I don't know why I am dry, <laughs> dehydrated from plane, plane rides. Um, we're we're going to basically have this unintended consequence that we really don't want. And uh, I don't think any of us want evictions. I will not, however, support the 1.5% late fee because, the, you know, when we have that much money that we depend on and it's so much, I mean, the fee is less than a utility uh, penalty. So, you know, I think there's got to be some comparisons of, uh, or comparables on that one. Um, but. I am going to tell you that we did hear, and uh, it'd be great to fact check, the loss of 14% housing stock in Seattle. Somebody made a quote on that. They probably can send us a link to that, but that is a significant loss in housing market. And the housing market that most of us that probably came to talk are small single-family homes, um, duplexes, multiplexes. I mean, these people are not owning 100 units and things like that. So I think we really have to try to keep that market viable in our city. And uh, and it would be great if we did a little bit more discussing on things that would hit the turnover rate and the pocketbook of actually both sides. Um, other than that, there were, I mean, I'm just really grateful that some word got out because I'm the only person up here who has 35 years of this kind of experience and I could tell you that I always want to win-win on anybody I don't want to go through the court system because it's costly for everybody to get rid of somebody but um, You're also Going to turn off a lot of good people who are actually being landlords every day and not having any issues So I would caution that we could consider uh, the late fee as being something we really, I mean, 1.5% is embarrassingly low. Um, Other than that, thank you.
1: Thank you. Uh, Okay. I guess I'll share some thoughts now. Um, One of the things that I heard this last week um, at NLC that I'm stealing on the topic of homelessness is that you you can't solve just one side of a Rubik's cube and consider it solved. So homelessness is this incredibly complex, multi-sided issue. And I don't think there's anybody in this this room in our city who's going to argue that it isn't one of the, the most important crises that are happening in our community right now, in our world, that we have to address. So I, I see this as an important part of it. We have heard, not just tonight, not just in discussions about tenant protections, um, but with community partners, our conversations about how evictions are driving more and more people into homelessness. And if we can keep them housed, we're, we're going to be all be better off. Um, so I guess I just want to remind everybody of that. We are trying to find ways to keep people housed. And this is not the only way we're doing it. Um, the, the theme of earlier this evening was you know, four amendments, well, three amendments specifically addressing dollars that the city is going to commit to um, human services in our community. So helping with, you know, groceries, helping with utilities, the city is also putting money, more money, it's not enough, um, more money into uh, supporting these individuals in our community. So I guess we also, we've also we heard a lot of comment tonight about just how, um, about the importance of learning from adjacent communities Seattle Kenmore were brought up it's my reading of this and I think you said use the word less onerous or Seattle is much more onerous that we are learning and we have based on the recommendations here these and maybe you can talk to how they have been directly uh, influenced by the learning from Seattle and Kenmore yes thank you
24: Um, so again, I keep going back to attachment B. We're looking at the comparison. So as um, as you can see, the 1.5% was not uh, just a number that I personally made up. We were trying to be um, consistent with what other cities around us have implemented, um, partially because there is some precedent for that in, in our region. And then also, as we've heard, there are people that own um, rental properties in multiple jurisdictions. So there is a Part of that, where we're trying to, um, I think Councilmember Roberts is the one that commented that this type of action, and we state this in the staff report, is probably best taken up by the state, uh, but there has not been movement at that level yet. Um, And I I have also heard that a percentage, uh, if uh, again, if one and a half doesn't work, a percentage is still better than a flat number because then it is reflective of the rent versus just $10 or $50 or what have you. So that's my comment related to that. Um, we have also, uh, another thing to note again, I commented earlier about just cause. We have not included that as part of this round of of, improve, or of tenant protections. Um, as have noted, there has been some uh, legal proceedings happening. Um, And so we are also learning from our neighbors uh, in those issues as well Um, And again, it's a lot of this has been modeled off of uh, Some model uh, protections as presented by the King County Bar Association And then what we have learned from our colleagues in other cities um, in the hopes again of having uh, Eventual that it would be something that would be uh, the law of the land not just the law in shoreline
1: Thank you So I think there were some good comments, you know, things for us to consider. Um, Thank you for addressing the 1.5%. I did think we heard from a couple of folks, at least, about um, pets and whether or not that could or should be addressed. Um, Maybe that's something you don't need to answer right now, but um, just if something that's something that staff could look at.
24: We may need to look at the legal language of that. I do believe that the pet fee would be in a, something additional above that. Mm-hmm. We're looking at what would just, because a pet is a choice, um, unless it's um, protected under, like it's a um, working animal um, for assistance, that's a little bit different. But um, I do think that would be something that would be above and beyond this, but we could we would look to legal to clarify that for sure.
1: And maybe it's not a need, but just to have you know some dialogue about the decision to keep it in or to add it or not. Um, yeah. And with that, I guess I would just say that I, I really appreciate the comments. Um, I'm probably most in line with what the mayor shared earlier, and I am going to be supporting some kind of ten- tenant protections um, when they come back to us. It looks like it's scheduled right now to come uh, for action on December fourth. That gives. The community, some some time to reach out to us, and for the the landlords out there, the property owners who are, are going to be giving us some their thoughts. Um, I would just like to present that question of, it, it's a Rubik's cube. We have got to try to solve this homelessness crisis, not all on one you know one area, um, but what. Can be done to slow down the number of evictions that are taking place. Again, assuming everyone here is here for good intent, um, a good landlord. It's the ones that who are not um, that we are trying to, um, well, trying to b- put some some guidelines around. So, um, looks like we have another comment here from Council Member Ramsey. Go for it.
28: Yeah. Uh, thank you, Deputy Mayor. Yeah, I just wanted to ask one more question. Um, and it's uh, in regards to one of the issues that we decided not to—that uh, that staff decided decided not to support um, or recommend, which was uh, no rent increase uh, if the unit or that dwelling is in um, poor condition. And um, I just—I I, I know um, just from experience, we have a slumlord on my na- on my street, and um, I know that that home. Uh, had no heat in that in that um, uh, building, and I the, it just seemed as though that those folks had really no option to. Or no leverage, and I just would think that would be an that would be an opportunity that, uh, or one of the few opportunities that a tenant would have some leverage um, to assure that they lived in a habitable environment. And I'm sure this is, that applies to a very small uh, percentage of landlords. Um, unfortunately, one of them was on my street, <laughs> so um, I'd like to know if if, if there's if there was any like current um, uh, um, litigation related to that uh, that was part that was went, went into the. Uh, decision not to
24: yeah include not, that that. I'm a, not that if yeah. I could speak to that yeah not yeah. that I'm aware of I will say I think then it becomes to uh, being able to legislate what would be the line in terms of significant disrepair so I think that could be a challenge um, obviously there also is some general protections that are already built into the state. Landlord-Tenant Act related to repairs. Of course, with everything like that, there are very specific process and rules that the tenant has to go through in order to withhold rent to pay for the repairs, and it also gets into the fact that sometimes tenants cannot afford, or it would be a challenge. There's a reason they're renting, you know, because they don't uh, cannot afford repairs if they owned. Um, so. Again, it, it, at this point, with the, the first round of this, we just felt it was um, maybe a step too far. Um, it, again, in looking at the other cities around us and trying to align ourselves as closely as possible. Thank you. Council Member McConnell.
2: I forgot, I had one question that I would like answered before the next time, since it's a voting... Uh, uh, Action item. Action item. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Social Security, if it is not dependent on that, to get a credit report. Because I actually go through an organization and uh, get credit reports. So I pretty much don't even monitor what's going in there. But the credit report you know, matches the person, et cetera. And uh, I, I think that's a real important tool to continue to provide landlords. Because that says uh, uh, you know it, it guarantees some there's some guarantee of reliability on paying, paying rent you know because most people their mortgages are highest priority, your rent should also be the same over utilities and other things you know that um that you know you might delay but if you if you can't pay the rent that would um Anyway, the credit report, to me, speaks of uh, accountability. Thank you. Mayor Scully.
3: Th- thank you. It, this is a little off topic, but I just want to address Council Member Ram- comment. The Washington state law lets you withhold rent if there's an essential system like heat, or in the case of the, the story we heard, a roof that's leaking lets you withhold rent and use that rent money to fix it and there, you know you you've run in the risk of a, of a lawsuit for unpaid rent on that. that that's not ideal and quite frankly if we're at a point where there's a house without heat in winter or rain's coming through the roof city needs to take action on that and i was very troubled by that that story about the leaking roof and i i, I know i and other council members have asked the city manager to to take a hard look at code enforcement and make sure that those things aren't slipping through the cracks because I'm not sure just a rent increase is going to be enough. I think we need some some much more vigorous action to stop those kind of things from happening.
1: Thank you, Mayor Councilmember Roberts. Uh,
5: thank you, thank you, Deputy Mayor. Um, I guess my my question is, I mean, to sort of twofold. One, I heard a, a Council Member Member and I believe Councilmember Ramsdale asked for a little bit more time to consider. I don't know if two weeks is sufficient time, or if they would like to see additional time, especially if we're thinking, I mean, it sounds like from where people are, there may be several amendments that may or may not, may need to be studied in some depth to understand what that, the implications of those. And I think that some of the, many of these challenges are not addressed in terms of what people are seeing, one of the challenges is that this ordinance does not, and we, the city does not have a rental registration program, and we aren't able to. Know, we don't know where. Uh, we don't have a good sense of where and who landlords are. Um, in terms of in thinking about some of the comments I had earlier about sort of trying to, having, to sort of say that no, we don't want bad landlords in the city, um, and most of the landlords I know are good. And fair, um, but we don't i mean we don't have a sense of what where these problems are in, in a large scale uh, it 's not to say we don't need to sort of, uh, i don 't think we're we don't have the clam we don 't see people clamoring for a rental inspection program like the city of Seattle has but there's lots of things we don't know and because we don't know we, we are operating sort of in the dark in terms of outreach on this Or particular ordinance if we had a rental registration program We would know who to contact and sort of say hey, what are you? What are you experiencing? Um, we have that with our businesses. I mean we uh, There was a split it was a split boat when we decided to adopt a business registration program and Then once we established it we realized that hey this was actually a good thing Um, We there was efficiencies that were gained uh, by creating that business registration program, so uh, I do think that I mean Especially longer term we need to if this especially if this is adopted that we need to sort of really look seriously about creating a rental registration program but my uh, my first question though (laughs) is this question of how much time do we need to sort of Put put amendments together, and for staff to evaluate some of the implications of those potential amendments.
6: Yeah, I heard uh, a number of questions from from council tonight, irrespective of uh, of potential amendments um, to the proposed ordinance. Um, So staff can definitely work on on researching those questions and and providing answers in in the next staff report. you know, often when there may be, the like council may want a, a little more time with the proposed ordinance like this, we can bring this back, as as Ms. Wolbrick Dunn said at the outset of her presentation uh, for another study session. Uh, answer those questions. Uh, it gives council an opportunity to think about, are there proposed amendments you would like staff to prepare? You don't have to obviously share those at another discussion, but um, uh, If we're bringing this back for action on the fourth, obviously we have a short week this week as well. Um, We would uh, need to get um, proposed amendments from council um, ideally by the end by Wednesday, or um, you know, this would go back as part of the packet uh, for the fourth. Would be issued on Monday of next week, so it does not give us much time. So we could. Again, this is up to Council. We could turn the December 4th as opposed to making that an action item, have that another study session. That would be, I'm looking to, to Ms. Wilbrook Dunn here, if we can answer some of these questions. Um, some of the questions I heard as well, um, you know, causation of, of rent uh, increases or decrease in the amount of rental in other communities that have you know, that's going to be really tough to create causation. Obviously, we'd have to look to is there an academic study? Um, may not be an academic study uh, in this area, or are there are academic studies across the country that can show causation because correlation is a very different thing than causation. Um, and so, we would, that will take a little time, obviously, to research that question. I believe that Councilmember Ramsdell and, and, and Councilmember McConnell, I think, both kind of voiced that. So, definitely a little bit of time. Uh, one of our other conundrums here is we've got a pretty uh, packed agenda for the, re- the remainder of the year. So this can obviously carry into, uh, into next year as well. Um, but that's uh, ultimately up to the will of the council about how urgent you'd like to bring this back. Um, I would suggest bring this back for another discussion on the 4th as opposed to making this an action item. If you want a little more time, obviously I heard some, some council members as well who felt comfortable moving forward.
1: Thank you mr norris um yeah just looking at the schedule we have december 4th and then one more meeting following that on the 11th before taking uh, a a long break Uh, my sense is that if we do discuss on the 4th again uh, that i would like to see there some action taken uh, on this on this proposal before the end of this calendar year so that would be my hope i think the mayor said it you know earlier that we may never get to consensus on this and we could continue to keep pushing it down for more and more study, um, I, I think rather than continuing to kick the can that it's gonna be important for us to make a decision soon. So mayor, you wanna weigh in?
3: Yeah, Yeah. thank you. I just, I, I don't have the whole agenda in front of me. Can we push that question to our coordination meeting? And I, I, I think we know from council what they want, but I, I don't wanna inadvertently make a meeting more difficult than it needs to be so rather rather than doing it on the fly i suggest we we take that offline and, and work with uh city manager and assistant to get it done uh timely
1: okay so but for december 4th are you comfortable um making that a discussion coming uh, back for discussion sure that's the day it was scheduled for action
3: yes yeah, yeah yes that's that's fine
1: okay all right um any other comments on this item for right now Council member Mork.
25: I I think that some of the items are less controversial than others. So just as a point of interest for uh, you and the mayor, it may be something that we can uh, perhaps reduce the, if we focused on ones that are not contentious, perhaps we could get something done and then have more time to think about those that are are more, um, there were more comments about. Thank you.
1: Thank you, council member. Any, any further comments? Okay. Thank you. We will, that, that agenda item is wrapped and we will, thank you, Ms. Wilbur Dunn. We will move on to our final study item of the evening, which is a discussion on ordinance number 1000, amending chapters 20.40 and 20.50 of the Shoreline Municipal Code to establish a requirement for ge- ground floor non residential space in all mixed multifamily commercial buildings in certain zones. And Nate Dom and Andrew Bauer are here to present the staff report.
29: Good evening, Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and Council. I'm Economic Development Manager Nathan Dahm. With me is Planning uh, Manager Andrew Bauer, as well as Patrick Doherty, the city's consultant for the development of these proposed regulations that we're gonna go through tonight. So just a little bit of background. As Council is well aware, a significant pipeline of multifamily projects have emerged in the city's commercial areas, and many of them including no commercial space in their plans in future development cycles It is still anticipated that the dense, walkable, transit-oriented development achieved today will help to create conditions for a wider array of development in the future. At present, while there's no really financing available for new developments, really of any type uh, at this time, really anywhere in the country, um, it's still, I think, the multifamily development community that has been creating those conditions and will continue to do so. Uh, And we'll be best positioned to continue to do so when that financing environment improves So we've tried to craft these proposed regulations in a way that really ensures We're well positioned for future multifamily development when the capital markets are once again open for business and try to strike the right balance of requirements and incentives to Guide the investment in a way that really meets the community's uh, needs and so I'm gonna kick it over to Andrew and he will uh, take us on a quick uh, review of some of the background uh, that led to uh, the, the, the discussion before you tonight. Great.
26: Thank you, Nate. So, the city's commercial and MUR zones allow standalone multifamily development without any other uses. And um, in 2020, the council adopted requirements in both Ridgecrest and North City for the ground floor commercial in new multifamily buildings with the intention that these requirements would act as a pilot project and we'd monitor and evaluate them and then back in June of this year the council adopted the interim regulations that require ground floor commercial and all commercial zones citywide so broaden that scope from Ridgecrest in North City to all throughout the entire city it was recognized that with the permanent regulations uh, that we would need to be PUTTING IN PLACE OR TO FINE-TUNE THE REQUIREMENTS, INCLUDING SPECIFYING THOSE AREAS WHERE GROUND FLOOR COMMERCIAL USES WOULD BE MORE OR MOST VIABLE AND SHOULD BE REQUIRED. AND SO AS SUCH, ALL PROJECTS WITH PRE-EXISTING PRE-APPLICATIONS WERE EXEMPT FROM THE INTERIM REGULATIONS. Um, AND ONE CORRECTION ON THE SLIDE HERE AT THE BOTTOM WHERE IT SAYS THE INTERIM REGULATIONS EXPIRE. December 13th 2024 that's actually December 13th 2023 so that's a a typo on our end and so uh, this map here shows the uh, zoning for both Ridgecrest and North City with the white hashing uh, is where the ground floor commercials required to date we've had one development come through these regulations uh, that is the ones that were adopted in 2020 and that's the Alta North City Mixed Use Project. It's at the corner of 179th and 15th, and that's the former's Lena's or the former Lena's site that's being uh, developed and is under construction now. The interim regulations are summarized on this slide, uh, and. They borrow pretty heavily to uh, from the standards that were already in place in Ridgecrest and North City. So I won't go through these in much detail, other than to say we treated these uh, interim regulations and what was already on the books from 2020 as sort of the base when beginning work in developing the permanent regulations, which Patrick will speak to next. Oh, yeah. And um, so these are. Just a few examples of (coughs) mixed-use development projects that have been permitted some of these uh, are actually voluntarily uh, uh, Mixed-use and so one of them on the bottom right there is the geo development Which is just north of City Hall here on midvale and then we have the line Development is uh, rendering on the left that's under construction right now Uh, There are several stories vertical now on 145th. This is in the 145th station area Um, And I always get lost on the one on the upper right which development is that again
29: That's uh, Grand Peaks and also includes the ground floor commercial space It's on 5th Ave right across from the state really sort of kitty-corner south south east of the 148th Street Station so and before we let patrick finally talk uh, i am going to just talk a little bit more about him just to give a little background so patrick uh, has a bachelor's in urban planning a master's in urban and regional planning and recently retired from a career in public service including six years as director of economic development and community services for the city of Edmonds. before that city of federal way over the course of 13 years patrick served as director of economic development Uh, The deputy director of the community development services department and director of community and economic development So a lot of community a lot of economic development. I probably missed a decade or two in there He did do uh, 15 years hard time in the city of Seattle Department of DCLU uh, Department of construction and land use Roles ranging from associate planner to manager of the design review program Um, We started talking with Patrick actually back in April so this is before uh council's first meeting on the interim regulations even so he really was concurrently helping us uh, put these regulations together through those discussions and and since and so he will now finally get to talk to you about the permanent regulations so
30: thank you well thanks nate and uh good evening mayor deputy mayor and council it's nice to be here walk you through uh what our proposal is and that's been to planning commission as you know i hope i'm being picked up by the mic here uh So yeah, now we'll go to the permanent regulations. There's some key issues that we identified. um, And of course, in your package, you have all the detailed code provisions. But I I think it's best to just focus on what the key issues are when we're turning the permanent, uh, the interim regulations into permanent regulations. So you can see here, I'm not going to read them all, but these are the headings that we're going to go through now uh, one by one uh, that we view as the key issues. So regarding the first one, which is allowable uses, we just decided in our research that there was one other use to add. That the interim prohibited, allow all uses but prohibited those that you see listed there in the top right. Um, and so we thought that those make sense, yes. But also parking uh, as the ground floor use did not make sense because that's not an activating commercial use. And you've seen buildings, as you know, that have parking on the ground floor. So we decided that the permanent regulations should um, add public parking or parking use, I think is the term, uh, as uh, prohibited use. We also proposed to change the term from ground floor to commercial to ground floor non-residential. It just recognizes a broader range of potential uses. Uh, Not everything is commercial. There are nonprofit agencies. There are uh, civic agencies. There are other things that might have a, a space or an office or or something that's not technically commercial. So it's a minor change, but it just broadens the. And then um, we'll move on to, excuse me. Oh, excuse me. Then live work was a new use that we wanted to add. Now, this is something that will weave its way through the rest of the discussion of these provisions. Um, because as you will hear as we move forward, we've <coughs> kind of adopted in this proposal a dichotomy between the primary commercial corridors, which are on the principal, uh, the um, minor and the collector arterials, so the main arterials, as you would, and then all the other side streets where commercial zoning may still apply would be considered secondary commercial corridors where lesser standards would apply than they would on the main arterials. So we also thought that live work units might make sense to apply for an interim period of five years. That doesn't mean that the unit starts and we kick them out after five years, but that means that we'd be able to permit live-work units for an initial five-year period, and the council could add to that if they wished upon report at the end of the five years on how it's going. But this, again, would be on the secondary corridors, where we've heard, and other cities have certainly experienced, that as these areas uh, redevelop and emerge as urban areas, the first years they're not very commercially viable, so this is a way to help allow uh, a transition by allowing up to half that ground floor commercial or non-residential space to allow live work units. So the next slide just shows kind of a uh, representation for um, those maybe watching or or some of you to understand live you see live work you'll see kind of a uh, section view there, a facade view of what that means. But probably better is the the plan view where you see that it's a unit that. Um, in that front space which they can certainly live in as well, but in that front space They're doing whatever that commercial thing is they do it could be as uh, As simple as that they're a, a sole proprietor lawyer accountant tax preparer uh, Acupuncturist I know someone who lives in one of these and does that they could be throwing pots and doing art in the front Whatever this is this is an arrangement that allows the commercial space is still built to the commercial standards and over the history or excuse me the life of the of the building which could be there 75 years it may transition to commercial as the market values rise but as an initial use it might make sense to do this uh, live work approach Um, we also uh, one of the issues we're talking about is parking and um, why is that not jumping? there we go and uh, so i'm going to skip to one slide and come back to this because Nate has a story to tell you about a project and how the parking requirement affected it. Thanks, Patrick. So yes, this
29: is uh, really uh, a recent example. So again, uh, the staff report covers this and uh, if we didn't list it earlier, I think we have that earlier, that one space per 400 square feet of commercial space is the current parking requirement for commercial space. Um, this recent example, so the developer initially did include a small coffee shop. It's right there in the, where that little star is in and, and the red box on the, uh, depicted on that actual building. Uh, you know, small coffee shop right across from the station there at 185th Street Station. And it's really just one of many examples that represent hours of staff time, really trying to seek a path for new commercial space to be brought online where the city's parking requirements stand in the way. Ultimately, um, we were not successful in this example. The, um, the on site parking was considered unnecessary by the developer, even it was required by the code, but they didn't see it as necessary with the boardings of the uh, light rail riders, the people living in apartments above and, and nearby. Um, they didn't really think that people would drive to this particular coffee shop and, and it wouldn't really impact the, the leasing uh, out, outlook for it. Uh, but reducing the commercial space to try to make room for the parking within that footprint was just making it Too small to be viable as really any commercial use in the view of the developer um, And the development agreement was another option uh, a, a, Which was considered kind of a process too onerous that would be bringing the permit before council basically if for those who haven't gone through that process uh, You know as opposed to going through a typical uh, permitting counter process um, just again, that was a non-starter being considered kind of too onerous on the part of the developer. So the design was revised and they'll be putting in a ground floor residential unit um, in that space instead. And so uh, this is just, a, like I said, one of many examples that, that we thought was appropriate to bring as a part of this process and see if there's a change in our regulations. We'll definitely uh, circle back with the developer and, and see if there's an opportunity uh, depending on, on the outcome. I have to apologize to Patrick
30: because I rearranged his slide order, and so he has to jump around a little bit. It's my fault on this. Oh, it's okay. Well, so that's actually a really good uh, intro, so we should have talked about that because that makes a lot of sense to do that. So that just shows you that uh, the parking requirement that we have now, the one per 400 square feet, may not really be making sense in all cases, and it may be in the future as the area becomes more densely developed and there's more opportunities for transit, more opportunities for walking in denser uh, um, Just neighborhoods and nodes we may ultimately have excess parking if we continue with the one per 400 We talked about this quite extensively at Planning Commission So the proposal in front of you and what was recommended by Planning Commission is to eliminate the parking requirement for the ground floor commercial uh, space Um, Now this might result in shared parking within the the complex that the residential and the commercial end up sharing we have Thank you for doing that. This is just a simplistic example uh, but it says a lot of when every use has to provide its own parking, you can see that you have times when parking is sitting there vacant because the uses may be, uh, at different times, of peak, peak usage. And so this is a simplistic way of saying that shared parking is becoming a more common thing in more dense urban environments. And we think that that would... Now, of course, any developer has a tenant in mind, specific larger format tenant, a grocery store, or larger thing, is going to provide the parking on their own they're going to recognize they're not going to get the tenant if they don't provide the parking but for the small things the coffee shops and the little office and the little uh, dry cleaner or whatever they may not need that parking as these areas densify so not to go too far but that's related to parking and that senior packet is that if there's a uh, exemption proposed and Planning Commission supported that, Oops, keep hitting that. so uh, related to the dimensions now the question you say is um, you might have is how much ground floor non-residential or commercial uh, should be required. And the uh, interim regulations spell that out, um, and so we'd like to talk about um, some changes. So as you see here uh, in the two columns of the table, I'll spell it out for you. Um, on what we're calling the primary commercial corridors, which are the principal minor and collector arterials, and I'll show you a map and some examples in a few moments. Uh, we'll just stick with the interim pro- uh, ordinances provision of 75% of a facade should be occupied by the ground floor non-residential but in the secondary corridor so the other streets that are not principal minor or collector ulteriors, the side streets and the back streets but still zone co- commercial we'd have a lower standard of coming down from the interim ordinance to 60% the depth currently you require 30-foot average with a 20-foot absolute minimum Uh, We just we talked through this issue with planning commission and thought that it might make some sense to have a little bit more flexibility in the absolute minimum There are vagaries sometimes in the internal workings of a building where the Where the shafts are and the elevators and electrical units and things sometimes cut into the space But it still has to average 30 and 15 is still a generous amount and then the height you had uh, In um, the Ridgecrest and North City areas an 18-foot height requirement, which is quite high But in the interim went down to 12 And in doing some research of the cities around us and even beyond, 15 feet seems to be the area that, the the height that is common and allows a full range of uses, whether that be restaurant or office or retail. 15 feet is still a reasonable uh, floor to floor height and not floor to ceiling, which is what it says in the interim code. So some minor tweaks, but that's important. We did hear, uh, and you heard yourselves this, uh, this evening in the public comment at the developer, stakeholder meeting that we had, from a developer mentioning that narrow narrow project sites may be difficult, it may be difficult to meet these provisions, given that there's a driveway often required. It's a narrow site that's in the mid of, middle of a block, may not have a side street, may not have an alley. So what we added in the code was for lots less than 100 feet in width, they can exempt the driveway from the calculation of this 75% or 60%, depending on what kind of street they are. And we can talk through that if you have questions about it. THE NEXT SLIDE JUST SHOWS AN EXAMPLE um, IN PLAN VIEW OF A PROJECT. THIS IS A LITTLE BIT DUMMIED UP, BUT IT'S A REAL PROJECT IN YOUR CITY. Um, BUT uh, SHOWING THAT OF THE THREE RETAIL SPACES YOU SEE HERE, THAT ADDS UP TO 75%. THERE'S STILL ROOM FOR THE OPEN SPACE REQUIREMENT THAT YOU HAVE IN YOUR CODE, AND THERE'S THE LOBBY SPACE. NOW, THIS IS OBVIOUSLY A LARGER BUILDING, NOT A HUNDRED FOOT WIDE uh, LOT. Um, YOU'LL ALSO NOTICE THE 30-FOOT DEPTH GOING THERE TO THE LEFT, uh, SHOWING THE AVERAGE DEPTH. SO THIS JUST HELPS SHOW WHAT THOSE Standards mean. Um, did we forget to talk about facade transparency? I'm talking so fast; I probably did. <laughs> That's on this thing. Yeah. Well, the other the other is, issue is the transparency of the facade. So, in other words, you could have 75% or 60% of your first floor in commercial or non-residential uses, but it's also important that they be transparent, that there be glazing, that windows and the doors be transparent, so people walking down the street have a lively atmosphere; they can see what's going on. And so we have a 60% uh, proposal for the primary corridor and down to 45% on the secondary corridors where it's less commercial anyway. And this is a depiction of the 15 foot uh, ground floor height as well. You can see how that works out. Now, on this map, it's very hard to read, I'm sure, but you can see uh, in the uh, kind of gold, the green, and the blue where all the primary uh, commercial corridors are. Those are the principal miner and collector arterials. But there's a lot of other streets in the city that are zoned commercial, and those are the secondary ones. So you can just see that there. And then here, on the next slide, are two, just two examples, and we have actually maps of the whole city if you want to see them. But these are two examples, 145th and Buffalo Way, 165th and 5th, showing how this plays out. So the crosshatch, not just the single diagonal line, but the crosshatch, let's look at the one on the left first. You'll see that um, on Buffalo Way and wrapping around the corner at 145th, a little bit into whatever that number name is there, I don't know, 149th, uh, you'll see the crosshatch. No, you'll see the crosshatch on Bottle Way and 145th. Those are the primary arterials that would get the higher standard. But then you see as it turns into, towards 149th or behind, it's single diagonal. That's the secondary corridor, so that would have a lesser standard in all regards, lesser amounts of commercial, lesser amounts of transparency, and allowing for the live-work units during the initial period. And you can see, again, uh, on the uh, 165th and 5th, especially on the left side of of 5th Avenue, you'll see the uh, crosshatch on the Main Street, which is 5th, but then as it turns the corner to 165th to the west, you'll see that it's a single diagonal, because that's a secondary. It's a much lower uh, intensity street at that point than it is to the east. So this is really trying to recognize a problem that other cities have had, And trying to nip that in the bud for you in advance of getting a lot more development. Related to the height bonus, uh, you do have some height bonuses or incentives in your code now, and the interim ordinance carried them forward. Um, The ground floor, just providing ground floor commercial or non residential in the interim ordinance, gets you eight additional feet if you can use it. I'll say something about that in a moment. But since we revised, the uh, required height of the ground floor from 18 down to 15, we thought that five made sense, not eight, because that's the amount over 10 feet that we're requiring. And some folks, if they didn't have to do any commercial, just a purely residential building, would only have a 10-foot floor. So we're requiring more than 10. Before it was 18, so give them eight. Now we're saying five, so just give them five. Now what I was parking for a moment is that most of the buildings that you see in these commercial zones, these mixed-use apartments above commercial, are taking full advantage of your height zone, the height limit in your zones. You may not be able to use the height uh, bonus anyway, but there are still cases that can do that in different zones. And we can do it if we need to, but I, I think that's just the message. Um, now, restaurant-ready space, which is also recognized in your existing interim uh, code, uh, should get 10 feet, get down from 18 because it's not... 18 foot requirement and grocery ready is a new addition so we've added grocery ready space recognizing that uh if somebody comes in and here's just an example as you can see how high the ceilings can be in grocery ready space sometimes that they should get up to 20 feet so that would be like in in a zone that would make sense for them could be a couple more stories of development with by adding a very needed grocery in uh, you know in a certain neighborhood and then we have a hardscape bonus uh which is already in the code um allowing a 5 percent increase in the amount of hardscape for providing the uh, ground floor commercial or non-residential, not increasing that further up to 100 for the other two uses, Uh, but just clarifying for you that that 95 is the maximum. There always has to be some green space, about 100% hardscape. And you're gonna cover this one. Yeah, okay, uh, take the last couple of this is
29: a sign that you almost it's almost your turn uh, To discuss and ask us questions. Um, I'm just enjoying your presentation. I lost track of my own notes here. I am so this is just um, So a couple of final slides. So uh, this one is simply calling out a minor scrivener's error um, And the change was made in the code amendments you received in your packets, uh, but this is a change from what was in the final packet Forwarded by uh, the final code language forwarded by the commission, um, but this is what the commission's intention was, and it clarifies that the majority of this code language is rec- related to those mixed-use buildings. This is just simply saying all the other commercial buildings in the city. We want that 15-foot height limit, uh, 15-foot height um, in in the in the commercial in other buildings in the city, not not related to this code. So this is the one. The one thing that we're going to recommend that's included uh, in other commercial use citywide. So again Referenced in the Commission um, And and approved by the Commission as part of their approved um, uh, Recommendation Um, You also have all of these in your packet the council goals and policies uh, Plus also we added some uh, from the housing element in there as well and again, I'm not going to read all of them to you but they do speak to encouraging residential development and commercial zones they uh, guide us or encourage us to consider housing cost and supply implications of proposed regulations um, encouraging walkable places to integrate a wide variety and mix of uses including those such as station areas and town center in t- intended for greater densities and then i also just want to mention that you know moving forward with the city's next comprehensive plan in development now we know we need to plan for the city's adopted emplo- uh, adopted employment growth target of 10,000 jobs as well. And so those are all things that have gone into this, um, and you can read all of those goals and policies at your leisure. I'm sure you all have and committed them to memory. Um, and then this just tells us where we're going, uh, or where we've been, and then we will talk about next steps. But we, um, again, this is all included in your packet, but we had a really robust public engagement Uh, With this project um, in the form of our survey which resulted in 655 responses from both residents and businesses As well as a well-attended developer stakeholder meeting which you already heard about how some of that input uh, that meaningful feedback has really uh, been taken to heart and um, That is all reflected and of course the Planning Commission's uh, feedback and changes all along the way and Planning Commission did vote unanimously at the public hearing to forward the uh, proposed changes to council with their full recommendation for approval. So the next steps will, uh, as of now, our plan would be, uh, depending on the direction received this evening, staff would, re- would prepare the code amendments for adoption by council on the fourth. This would keep it on track for appro- uh, for permanent regulations to be in effect uh, prior to the expiration of the, temp- of the uh, interim regulations which is uh, a one week following that date. And of course, uh, if there are significant changes or if, if council would like that date of December 4th could instead be a uh, a motion to extend, should we need more time. And with that, uh, we can finally turn it over, Mayor Scully and Deputy Mayor Rob um, Robertson, to you for your questions, discussion, we are we're here to help.
1: Great, thank you so much. Um, floor is open. Who has got some comments? Councilmember Randstad.
28: Thank you, Deputy Mayor. Um, uh, Just uh, two questions. Um, uh, One was, uh, it seemed like pretty reasonable that you were, you know, the interim regulations for interior height uh, height, uh, were 12 feet. Um, The prior were 18 feet. I remember like several months ago, developers came in and they were just like, that is a poison pill. 18 feet is a poison pill for any development. Um, And so the interim had it at 12 feet. Um, I, I happened to do a little Googling to see what Edmonds ha- what had recently done, and their minimum, was, uh, minimum height was 12 feet. So I'm kind of wondering, um, like when you're comparing Edmonds, and I think you've got some experience with that one. I can see you smiling. I'm sure you have got a good answer for that. Um, uh, if you could kind of tell me like how you came about to 15. I mean, obviously, it's like 18, 12, 15, but, but why not 12 instead of 15? Right. And I have another question after you answer that one.
30: Well, so. let me answer Edmunds first because... Okay. just came from there. Um, Edmonds is maybe becoming unique. (laughs) It probably always has been becoming increasingly unique in the sense that they've got really low height limits, and they really only allow 30-foot tall buildings, except for in the um, Highway 99 area. And so basically, in order to even possibly have a three-story building in a 30-foot height profile, you can't really require more than about 12 feet. And even then, nobody's doing it for the most part. So that's that. And they actually often complain that the commercial spaces, what few new things they've had in their downtown aren't tall enough, <laughs> yet they don't wanna raise the height limit to accommodate taller spaces. Um, the 15, uh, so we did, your staff had done research in the past and I did additional research over the summer. Um, there's definitely a lot of variability among communities, but the biggest number around which any you know, coalition occurred was 15. Um, And I've experienced that in Seattle, all the buildings that have been built over these last couple decades, uh, most of the buildings are around 15 height. Um, It it allows for still the floor assembly being up to, you know, from eight inches to a foot thick, you still end up with uh, up to 14 feet, sometimes 13, 8 or something, to allow for a full range of uses. And that's the biggest issue here is really to not have spaces that are so short that then you know, after the first couple tenants, they're stuck. They can't do anything other than bookstores and attorney's offices. And they can't bring that cafe in or in a small restaurant because it's not tall enough. So um, that was where we landed. Uh, 18 is definitely very, very tall. I wouldn't recommend that. And I think 12 is just too short.
28: Uh, thank you. Um so the the next question I had was really impressive the the uh, outreach you did with um, the uh, public outreach as well as the um, uh, developer stakeholder um, uh, group meeting that you did um, one thing I was kind of looking at um, uh, When you one of the um, top reasons f- uh, that business owners uh, Had given for the unlo- unlikelihood to locate was concerns about adequate parking for customers and staff which is a little bit in, in uh, juxtaposition with uh, what you had the the vignette that you provided earlier about that the coffee shop So I can understand why like that wouldn't work um, uh, across from the light rail, but what about other areas of the city that um, That may need some um, customer parking
29: So was there were there were more than a couple of juxtapositions There was in fact some of the neighborhoods that showed up on people's top list were also on people's bottom list of best place or worst place um, but uh, we also, we, got, we, wanted to ask, uh, we wanted to get really good data about parking, so we asked it a couple of different ways. Um, we also got some good insight into how the psychology of the cost of parking can influence folks. So I gave you that example, which is one of many that we've seen where uh, they don't want to put in the, the parking because they know they're not going to recoup their costs from charging that tenant for that parking because they can't afford it. not in the business model because they don't need it right and so there's cases like that so i think the big message i will give you is we're not recommending any limit on parking so a developer can choose to put in the right amount of parking for what they're planning on doing in the space um patrick do you want to kind of summarize the Question that the way you asked it about how they would break down how they yeah, pay for it. You're nodding like
30: Yeah that. There was a question in the survey that we, we did a fair amount of talking about to make sure that we were capturing right We wanted people not just to say hey, do you want parking? Well, of course we want parking we say okay recognizing parking costs and that cost may be passed on to the rent of the space We gave them three scenarios the business owners We said would you prefer to pay more for commercial space because you know there's dedicated parking? Would you prefer to pay? maybe slightly more or just average rents, uh, recognizing that a shared parking arrangement could be made or would you prefer to pay less and not have parking in the building? And the highest uh, answer receiving the responses was the middle one, pay market rates or slightly more, but uh, count on shared parking within the building. So that helped inform us as well, because we thought, well, that seems to be even the business owners themselves of the ones who responded, the majority said that.
5: All right,
1: thank you. Council member Roberts,
5: I Think you I appreciate the work that's been done on this and uh, um, I appreciate uh, What our previous council members have done in sort of pushing this a no council member Chang really was pushing this at uh, the beginning And uh, I think it's we're now at that point where we see sort of we're seeing buildings that being developed under the code um, and we're now at the precipice of something that would apply citywide. So I think that's a very good um, work that's been done. And so thank you to the staff for put, for working through this. But I do have a few questions um, that I don't think um, I'm not sure have been quite addressed in this code. Um, the first is the question from that we heard in public comment, the question about small lots. Um, I know that when we've been touring, at least in the past, we've toured and we've seen potential or at least uh, initial developments on on small lots. So, can you, do you sort of do you think that a code amendment is necessary to address um, that concern, or are we do we need to, or well? I guess I'll just ask start sure. there.
9: Yeah. Um,
26: so as written the the administrative design review process which is uh, it's just that it's an administrative review of uh, departures would be allowable to depart from any of these standards so in the instance that we were dealing with a really unique circumstance or a really narrow law or something we can kind of assess that on a case-by-case or development by development basis and then grant a departure that's reasonable uh, to, to Account for those types of constraints. So yes.
30: Okay, I will. Well, take- I want to add one minor thing, if that's okay. Um, one of the things that arose in discussion, just kind of casually at the developer stakeholder meeting, related to this topic was that, you know, maybe it would result in some really small commercial spaces if it's a narrow lot, and that's actually not a bad thing, because even a 10 or 12 foot wide space, at the depth that's you know required is a great space for a, a startup business or a small, you know, non-retail business, an office, or if it is retail, a startup business. I mean, it's not all; it doesn't always have to be the full 20, 30 feet of frontage. Uh, in fact, small spaces are really good for small local businesses. So um, I think that in the case that we heard about, there would be probably a small space, you know, uh, 15 feet wide or something but that's still a viable space
5: It would be 15 by 30 i mean you'd have to go back yeah. 30 though well, right in, in that particular case but yeah the depth would be greater than the width yeah exactly uh, okay um the second question is sort of a potential conflicts with other provisions of the code yeah. um in the pro- i'm sorry i'm trying to go back and forth between a couple of screens here um, it, this uh, the first question is this only applies to multifamily buildings. So if someone, it's if someone wanted to be, build a pure commercial, code building, this would not apply. It's only when you put a want to put some residential, feature or uh, residential unit on the property, then this code, then this particular these pervi- particular provisions apply.
29: Right. So with the exception of the height which we, we, as I mentioned, we added language and we did a little correction on it because it, there was a scrivener's error on it. So the 15 foot would apply to any uh, commercial development. So that'd be the floor to floor height. I guess the floor in that case is the roof, uh, but otherwise, yeah, the, or it could be a multi-story commercial building, but that first floor would be required to be um, 15 feet. But the other provisions um, no, there. This is really the multifamily section of the code with the exception of that one provision um, It's dealing with the multifamily section of the code
26: Did you want to come back? Yeah, and I would just add to there's other design standards related to commercial and multifamily and so Related to the transparency building placement and, and everything so we still have other design controls in place within the existing code but what this really focuses on is um, enabling and requiring that mixed-use type of development
5: okay this is getting a little bit complicated here because if i mean if we look at town center uh, town center one we have one one of the things that's allowed there is auto an auto dealership and i've underst the i mean this code only applies to multifamily so if someone wanted to put a new auto dealership in t c one these the, the you'd look at the general commercial standards and not this particular these this these requirements
26: that's correct yeah so the the scope of these amendments were not to look at any of the uses per se and so what but the issue that you're highlighting is absolutely true and would be kind of beyond the scope of What we were charged with or at least what we understood we were charged with to bring forward for planning commission study And it's really getting kind of bigger picture at the types of land uses and where they're allowed throughout the city
5: Okay um, Okay um, One of the provisions in the code says that if you have a lot that's um, if you have more than two hundred square two hundred linear feet of uh, frontage, then or if you have more than two hundred linear feet of frontage, you have to have a some sort of public walkway. And there's also requirements in the code to have some sort of uh, public open space for buildings. Um, The code talks about um, in this particular code. So, if the again, this let's assume this building is multifamily, uh, talks about the you have to have 75% of that lineal frontage of the whole lot being uh commercial. It's actually not
30: the whole lot, it's the building. No, the building may occupy, but the whole if lot, you look at two, uh,
5: 2050 250, it talks about lineal frontage. It's not talking about the it's not specifying. It's not quite specifying about the building itself. I apologize to my colleagues for sort of getting into some of the details here, but it's not necessarily clear when you have requirements for open space, uh, whether that open space is counted against that requirement for commercial space is, is my question, is my comment
26: we could certainly clarify i don't have the full reading of that section in front of me i mean the title of that section is building design
9: yeah
26: and then we in your packet at least we jump down to subsection three generally in these design standards there's like a purpose and intent in each one so um we could pull that up but i I mean, I what, believe if you're looking, I think at my point. I mean,
5: my point is largely that we have potentially conflicting building designs standards between the building designs in 20 um, 2050 and what's here in twenty forty. is is sort of my larger point. I think they're they're not quite harmonious. It, 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 um, but that's just uh, that's can the point I'm I mean, yeah. Can I give you? A, I just want to chime in
29: about um, the. Uh, open space, and maybe that's not what you're getting at, but we did have a discussion about open space, and this ended up in the in the in the regulations that were afforded by Planning Commission, where open space, you can see on this graphic here that if that open space there uh, on this design was actually incorporated and uh, designed to uh, in a cohesive manner to be a part of the commercial space. so, uh, and really, this came from a discussion about recognizing the interest that we've heard from some council members for more ground, for more um, outdoor dining, for example. What are, what are some things we could be doing to encourage the outdoor dining? So in this example, if that open space is, like I said, kind of contiguous and designed coherently, uh, unified with the rest of the commercial space, it would be counted. Uh, and so you're, so it would be within that calculation of the back of the commercial space. From the frontage is is uh, that the open space can be a part of that.
30: If that? I don't know if that was the question, but that's an answer to. It. I have a partial answer that so uh, the first half of your question was related to making sure that it's 75% of the building and not the site. Right. So the building designs uh, section 2050-250 in your in your packet. Um, this uh, then it's C. It says ground floor and non-residential one and two. Number two says. These requirements apply to the portion of the building's ground floor abutting a public right-of-way, and then number three talks about the 75% of the frontage. So it's the frontage of the building. It's a subset of
5: what it says before about being the building and not the. Frontage. Okay, so in this particular example on the screen, the open space should not have been considered as part of the facade width because it's not because it's open. It's not. No, that's not where I was going.
30: Um, this is up here to show that the they were able to. Uh, achieve the open space requirement and the 75%. But then we've proposed amending that by saying that the depth of the open space can also be included. And that's in uh, a a new section of four of that same building design section, um, where we talk about public place may be included in the average depth calculation provided is cohesively designed and integrated with the non-residential. The average depth of the non-residential space may be measured from the lot line abutting the right of way and include the public place. So that was a way to, to um, mediate the large sites. It's possible because there's so much more area to talk about. But in some smaller ones, it was getting to be tight. So we wanted to make sure that the public space, if it's integrated with the, the flanking commercial space, would be able to be counted uh, towards the seventy
5: five percent okay, thank you that help, that does help. Um, a quick couple other quick things. I am concerned that grocery isn 't defined in this code and it 's not defined anywhere else. so I mean there's a big distinction between uh, what we think is a grocery store and say a dollar store or and that needs I th- believe that needs to be defined in this code um, b- before we move forward as we move forward. So we can certainly take that note and go back. I'll just, um,
29: to maybe we can um, give you some background on the thought process behind this one. And that is that it would be an ADR uh, process. And I was I think I'd nominate Andrew to kind of describe how he foresees that might play out in terms of an ADR and the process of identifying um, you know, a legitimate grocery use in that process. Did you want to?
26: Yeah, I think the intention here was that if someone was proposing a grocery ready space that they'd essentially, they would design the space. And so we'd look at all the, you know, the ceiling heights, um, make sure like the back of house operations could be accommodated for oftentimes if it's a large enough grocery store, you know, you're gonna have different size of deliveries and things like that. So really. Kind of working closely hand-in-hand with the applicant through the development and the project design phase to ensure that it's a a grocery store indeed as they're presenting it and b that it's going to function and operate kind of cohesively and within the building
5: i appreciate that some of some of the people i've talked to would prefer certainty in code and rather than sort of the question of whether this is or isn't and sort of take a project and it's design review, I don't know what's gonna happen, so I would prefer to see it defined. And certainly there will be questions that are asked, but I think I'd rather see some sort of definition of grocery in there. And then finally, the other thing is that in what we're seeing in terms of what is being developed in these codes, uh, I think we have the unintended consequences of if you look at what's prohibited in these zones um, based on, on this code, um including marijuana retail uh you have this potential that that's going to be zoned out of the city because the only way you'd have a a retail marijuana store would be a standalone place or in some some purely commercial building and that's not what kind of that's not the kind of facility we're seeing built in the city and so i think we have this unintended consequence of we allow it but in terms of what actually would be developed Those things are now essentially prohibited in the city, so I think there's a balance. We said we want don't want that uh, those kind of facilities in MUR30 uh, MUR70, but we did say that we would, and we have said that we would. uh, That's okay in other zones in the city, and now we're kind of lumping this all together and with any kind of new building. We're saying essentially saying no to that. So I'm concerned about the prohibitions of what uh, Is prohibited in ground floor commercial. Thank you.
27: I, I would just like to add that with respect to um, Marijuana, there's a lot of state requirements and safety requirements and regulations on you know, What has to be done and I think you know in a lot of situations, it would be very difficult to meet those standards in a multi-use um, building, just because it could, you know they, there's just so many restrictions. But you know, we can take a look at that along with some of the other uses, because I think you're talking about more than that use.
1: Thank you, Councilmember Mork. Uh,
25: thank you. Um, really appreciate the time that you've all put together in this. Ground floor commercial is something we really uh, want to have, and I'm so thrilled that the Planning Commission had a chance to review this in detail and I've, and approve it unanimously. That says a lot for it. Um, my colleagues have asked several questions that I was going to, so I don't need to. <coughs> Mr. Bauer, you said you have flexibility, correct? that The way this is written, you have some flexibility to handle things, that was important. On the parking side, uh, sounds like you've gone to the middle middle place where we really want to be so again i'm i'm really pleased with how this is going together Uh, one of the things that um, i have learned uh, in my short time on council is is that uh, we can tweak things if we have to Uh, and i assume that still that would apply to this too so if we found out something that is an unintended consequence, we can deal with it later. I really appreciated you spending the time talking about the main corridors and the arterial corridors. I think that's gonna make a big difference. And having to put stuff in ceilings is very difficult. 15 feet is hugely better than 12. I am so glad that you have increased that. And thank you very much. Councilmember Povy.
22: Thank you. We've always said we wanted people to get out of their cars, and so this is, you don't even have to get out of your apartment. Just come down, get it, go up, right? That's exciting. Uh, I'm just curious though, strategically, and I love what you said, Mr. Bow. right from the onset, when the person does apply, you wanna work with the person to find out. So I'm thinking of strategically positioning all this so we don't have all the groceries on the east side and all the restaurants on the west side. And so, working with the applicant to find out what, how can we diversify all these things? You know, I don't know if you're following, but I guess you get a point. Okay, thank you, Mayor Scully. Thank you. I, I want to basically concur with
3: Councilmember Mork. I, I think there's kind of an emergency on this because I think we've already seen the pace of development slowing, and I suspect just given national factors are under control, that it's going to slow it even further. So I think if we want to see these kind of facilities going in in this spate of rapid development, we need to get this on the books. And I haven't heard anything tonight, either from council members or the public, that's made me say, whoa, hold on. You know, we're not ready for this. The unintended consequences might be severe. So I'd like to see us get this enacted as soon as possible. And then I think these are the concerns raised are things we can iron out. The only other thing I would add is that I, under these circumstances, I fully support reducing parking because I agree, I just don't see these becoming destination businesses necessarily. I think these are going to be local service businesses that people are unlikely to drive a long way to get to, and that most of the folks who go to the coffee shop or the convenience store or the you know long drugs or whatever it is um, will be walking from the MUR zone itself. Thank you.
1: Any other comments tonight? Great. I don't have anything to add either. So thank you very much for your time. So I, um, I
26: guess I, I just wanted to clarify then in terms of bringing information back for, I mean, I, I believe this would be scheduled for action then on December 4th. And so um, I think the one topic I kind of flag would just be around a little more discussion of, of the prohibited uses within these areas. Um,
6: was there anything specifically that council would be looking for? Deputy Mayor, if I may, um, I guess if there are any specific amendments that council members would have to the proposed code, I mean, I heard a couple uh, not necessarily proposed amendments, but things that could generate or turn into proposed amendments, uh, I guess I would ask that we get those by, by Wednesday if possible. Uh, obviously we don't need to. Even if it's a concept, staff can then work on um, turning that into a proposed amendment that we would put into the staff report for action, as as Mr. Bauer said, when this comes back on the 4th.
1: Anything else? Okay. Well, that was our last agenda item, Uh, so this meeting is officially adjourned.